Hey, this is Ken Art of Wake Up Carolina. Because we're in such demand, we decided to do a podcast. Well, actually, it's like an archive of a previously broadcast show on the radio. So it's not a podcast. Well, it is presented as a podcast. So invite people to join us for whatever it is you just said they can join us for. That's right. Enjoy, and it starts now. Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Monday morning, March the 7th, 843-661-0937 is our number. Good morning, Cato. Good morning. Morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. Everybody have a good and exciting uh, weekend. Yes, sir. Is there any uh, progress good. on the baseball front? Yeah, a lot of progress no. if you're a Clemson fan. Uh, oh. Not very much if you're a Gamecock yeah, fan. Bad uh, weekend for the Gamecocks. <laughs> yeah, my daughter texted me yesterday. So in my freshman year, I'm 0-5 uh. against Clemson in the sports that mean anything to anybody. Um, I'm sorry, but what what is the old Forrest Gump line? Sorry, I had a fight at your Black Panther party. Uh, I had a Clemson fan text me yesterday. Sorry about your women's basketball team. Oh, and, yeah. and the same weekend that, that, that it was it was it reeked with sarcasm. Yeah, of course, without question. Um, I've got a theory here, and I'll probably get in trouble. But none of my friends are up this early in the morning, um, especially not listening this early in the morning. So I'll have at it anyway. There, there's a reason that one athletic department overperforms. And one is historically underperformed. Uh, well, let me, let, let me back up a half step. You ready? Has one athletic department, department historically overachieved and one athletic department historically underachieved? I mean, is that, I mean, is that an established fact? I mean, I've been a Gamecock fan as long as I can remember cheering for a team. I think you could argue that. Over the long run, they have historically underachieved, especially when they become one of the, uh, one of the most lucratively, uh, lucratively funded athletic departments in all of America, right? I mean, the SCC, 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 that there's a lot of money coming into the coffers in Columbia, um, far more than Clemson. I think it's 30, 40 million bucks more annually. I mean, over the long, okay, $30 million is a lot of money, but over 10 years, that's $300 million. Uh, when, when Oklahoma and Texas joined the SCC, that number jumps up to probably 40 or 45 million, and Clemson's well-funded. I mean, Clemson is a very well-funded, uh, one of the better-funded programs out of the Big Ten. I'll say this. Outside of the Big Ten and SEC, Clemson's probably one of the five most-funded athletic programs in America. No question about it. They do a phenomenal job of funding their men's sports. I said men's sports um, because they don't have to be quite as, um, as cosmopolitan and woke as our flagship university does. But here's the problem. You ready? Because I've, I've, I've delved into this all weekend. Because I saw this coming. I mean, I really and truly saw this, this coming. Um, you, you've got the University of South Carolina has um, 18 voting members on its board of trustees. Nine of the 18 are attorneys. Clemson has 13 voting members of its board of trustees. One is an attorney. It's heavily weighted with mm-hmm. business people people that have run companies and operate companies and retired from companies. And at the University of South Carolina, half of its voting membership with its board of trustees are attorneys. What do attorneys get paid to do? Argue about things. Complicate things. Um, attorneys don't want things to be fixed, right? I mean, the last thing an attorney, what what is attorney? Uh, a lawyer gets paid for what? Some sort of conflict. Billable hours. Sure. I mean, some sort of conflict. That the more conflicted things are, the more confusing things are, uh, the less things are being repaired, the more profitable a lawyer's life is. Lawyers aren't paid to fix things. They're paid to settle things. But you know when they settle things? When the insurance companies run out of money. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the way that game is played. Um, 
you know, how much money does the insurance company have to spend on this? Um, $70,000. Okay, it'll take about uh, six weeks and $65,000 <laughs> for us to get it fixed. Um, it's just it's the nature of the business. And as a business person, I've been involved in a couple of those that you believe should have been settled much quicker than they have, but the insurance company had X number of dollars set aside to settle this case. So when you look at one athletic department overachieving, one fundamentally underachieving, um, you, you got to kind of peel the onion back a little bit and dig a little deeper to find out exactly why or why not that's the case. Um, the University of South Carolina is just not a well-run athletic department. It just can't be. I mean, it can't be to be as well-funded as it is and, and to lack success of the way it does. The basketball team had a run to the Final Four. You know how many times they've been to the uh, Final Four in Frank March's 10 years there? Excuse me. You know how many times they've been to the NCAA tournament in the 10 years Frank Martin has been there? One. Mm. They had one of these magical runs, you know, when Cenarius Thornwell was there. But other than that, they've not been back to the NCAA tournament. So, so uh, uh, you know, is the University of South Carolina basketball program expected to go to the NCAA basketball tournament? 64 teams go every year. Are they expected to go one out of 10 years or more? Well, they, of course they should be expected to go more than one in 10 years. Someone asked me over the weekend, what is a reasonable expectation for the basketball program? I'll tell you mine, to be in the tournament three of 10 years, on the bubble between three and four years, and out of the tournament three of uh, 10 years. I mean, that's a reasonable good, expectation. Good expectations. It ain't Kentucky. I mean, it's not Duke or North Carolina. I mean, they've never m made that commitment. They're not a blue blood in college basketball, but you're one of the best-funded athletic programs in all of America because of your conference affi conference affiliation. You can, you, you've got a, a great recruiting budget if you choose to. You can go hire a great coach if you choose to. You've got a 17,000, 18,000-seat arena. There's no reason to go to the NCAA basketball tournament one of 10 years. you got to do better than that. And I'm convinced that some of the problems within this university's, university's athletics department is its inability to be properly and effectively run. I mean, it's hard to argue that it is. Does Am that I wrong? come down to Ray Tanner? Well, I mean, well, I mean, he's the boss. I mean, the board hires Ray. Or excuse me, the board hires the president. The president hires the, uh, you know, the AD. The AD hires the coaches. And I like Ray. Ray's somewhat oh, yeah. of a friend of but, mine. But there's a lot of chatter out there. Well, I mean, the, there there's a lot of chatter out there, and I hear the chatter as well as you do. Um, I mean, whatever they're doing is not working, right? I mean, your, your arch rival is whipping your butt at about every turn with a smaller athletics budget, smaller school, um, inferior conference. Something's, I mean, something's wrong with that. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. But someone explained to me, I mean, once again, smaller school, smaller alumni, inferior conference, smaller budget. And they whip our butt at about everything we play at other than women's basketball. And the day we agreed to make Dawn Staley the highest paid women's basketball coach in America was the day that I threw up in my truck and had to go to the car wash <laughs> and get it uh, and get it cleaned out. But anyway, that's um, that's just kind of my rant this morning. That makes me feel a little bit better. I know you're a lot more worried about the price of gas and oil and Ukraine and Russia and some of these um, imperfections of the world around us. But um, but when you lose to your when, when you lose your arch rival in football, when you lose your arch rival in basketball, when you get beat in a three game series swept, so something's wrong there. Something has to be addressed. There has to be a reimagining of Gamecock athletics, a reformulating, a rebranding, a recasting, a re-imaging, whatever you want to call it. I mean, we can hire a consultant and pay them a lot of money, or we can just fix it. 
And, and all I can say is this. One university has more money, a bigger alumni, and is in a superior conference. That's the university that loses to its rival over and over and over and over again. And you got to go to the reason. And I've concluded, and I don't know that I'm right. I don't have any data, any analytics at all, except to say nine of the 18 voting members at the Board of Trustees at USC are attorneys. One of the voting 13 at Clemson is an attorney. I think that matters. Me personally, I think that means something. I was thinking when uh, you said your daughter talked about the basically the record of sports since she's been at school. My son went to University of South Carolina in 2014, and so his college years were not the best as far as the football record was, and he liked to point that out. He got there right at the end of the golden era, you know? Yeah, we had that brief run when, when someone who refused to buy into that nonsense, you know, the chicken curse. I mean, Spurrier was just bigger than that. You know, didn't believe in any of that nonsense. But, I mean, something's wrong. I mean, I, I don't, you know, is it is it the, the coach's fault, the board's fault, the, the university's fault? Is there a chicken curse? I, I don't know. But something's wrong. And something has to be done. If you're going to create different results, you got to do something different. And it seems to me this university is very hesitant to do anything different. You know, I grew up believing. Or I grew up hearing. I didn't believe this because I was not. I didn't know any better. But I'd always heard that the problem with the University of South Carolina is too close to the State House. Well, I spent two years at the State House. Ah, there might be something yeah, to that. There might be a lot to that. <laughs> there, there might be. Well, I mean, the State House is actually in the middle of the University of South Carolina's cap campus. I mean, it's not owned by the university. It's about the only piece of property that's not owned by the university in, in those six or eight blocks. But because um, the university is kind of consumed you know, downtown Columbia, um, I, that's my rant. Let's, I feel a little bit better. Um, but, but hey, gas is up 20 cent overnight. I mean, you, you've not even seen this yet. I mean, I, I rode by two today. One was 378, one was 385, mm. I think. Um, the It's down to 16 cent. When I went to bed last night, the ticker had it up 22. This morning, it's up 16. Oil briefly went over $130 a barrel. It's at about $122 or $3 a barrel. Um, Blinken said yesterday on CNN that they're working with some of the Western allies to embargo some of the Russian oil, and we'll kind of delve into that. That is a big issue because gas could skyrocket to about four fifty or 60 a gallon <sighs> by the end of this week. What? I mean, it really, truly. I mean, it could go to about four fifty or four sixty a gallon by the end of this week. I think, did I read that they're trying to cut a deal with Venezuela? I mean, but but there's not enough capacity there. there there's just not. I mean, yeah, they're, they're trying to cut a deal with some of these um some of these less unfriendly nations. Anything but create our own supply. Well, I mean, there, there's not being any. Well, I mean, so, some of the, um Joe Manchin is saying this, that there's several other Republicans, excuse me, Democrats. There's a handful of Democrats out there saying, hey, we need to declare emergency ordinance or emergency declaration and and just, you know, drill, baby, drill. I mean, I hate to sound like Sarah Palin, but right now some of the Democrats are saying drill, baby, drill. We'll get into that in just a bit. Do we have a call? Let's go there. Bird Odom, Harbor County. Hey, Bird. Good morning. I can't. I'm your friend, and I'm up. <laughs> Good deal, Bird. <laughs> the big, uh, big deal this week, of course, uh, President Trump's coming to town, coming to the PD, which I think is great, and looking for just a tremendous crowd. I've had a lot of people send me messages and call me about getting tickets, how to get tickets. And uh, believe it or not, most of them are people that have never been to a Trump rally. So 
Uh, I think that uh, the popularity of Trump in the seventh district uh, was probably eighty percent, and he's probably up there close to ninety now because there's people on his side that were not on it before. And uh, I think that's like I said, the rally's going to be good for the PD. It's going to be good for the state and. It just shows the uh, affection that Donald Trump has for South Carolina, and I think that that bodes well for for everybody. Vert, how do people get tickets? Uh, you get tickets by going to uh, Save America Rally, Florence, South Carolina, and uh, uh, link will come up, and uh, you can get up to two tickets; they're free. And uh, I think the plan right now is uh, the gates will actually open at two o'clock. I think your parking will open about eight in the morning. Uh, the events will start around 4 o'clock, and, of course, President Trump will be coming on sometime probably seven, shortly after 7 o'clock. And we thank Russell Fry and Katie Arrington will join him on stage at some point in time. I know Hendrick Governor McMaster's coming. I've, I've heard that. Um, and from what I'm gathering toward the end of the event, uh, Katie Arrington, who was running against Nancy Mays in the 1st Congressional District in Charleston, and Russell Fry, who's running against Tom Rice, both have been endorsed by Donald Trump. Uh, they'll both appear and say a few words to the uh, to the masses. I would imagine is that what you're in, Bird? Uh, I'd say that was probably about 110 percent right. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I hear these things like you do. Thank you, Bird. <laughs> uh, appreciate it. Um, so that's this Saturday. Mm-hmm. Gates open. <laughs> Sounds like a tailgate. Yeah. Gate open. <laughs> gate. It's just a racetrack. You ready? Yeah. Um, gates open at eight. Yep. Um, the event starts at two, and Trump speaks at seven. I mean, what is this, um, Politica Palooza? You know what I mean? Is it, is it, it takes is it a lot a of time to I mean, organize it, that many people. Is it, a, is, it a, uh, is it like a, is it Woodstock in Florence? Um, it what, kind what, of is. What, I mean, is there, okay, but let me ask you this. Is it on the tarmac at the airport? It's at the airport. I don't know exactly where, but I guess so. I okay. guess that's where they can pull the plane. And well, I mean, do you, you can, bring tailgating chairs? I mean, is, you know, is it like a beach concert? Do you bring your fold-out chairs or your, your beach are, towels? Are coolers allowed? Yeah, is it coolers? <laughs> I mean, is it grills? Is it, you know, I would say Gamecock Park, but I'm insulted to be a Gamecock this morning. <laughs> is it um, is it as they tailgate in Death Valley or Little John? Uh, I, I don't have any idea, but, yeah, it's this Saturday. Um, Verge said go to Save America. Uh, go to the Save America website, and there's a, kind of an icon and a link that you go on to. And there, you know, it's limited to two tickets per, um, I don't know, registrar, the person, whomever goes on that line. I mean, I could go online to get two. Cato could go online to get two. Ref can go online and get two. But it's only two tickets per, I guess, uh, visit to the website. But it's Save America PAC. Um, I don't know if it's .com or not, but that's where you get tickets. And, um, I mean, I've heard estimates of 40,000 people. I don't buy that. I mean, for the life of me, I just don't believe that 40,000 people are going to show up in Florence, South Carolina to watch an ex-president speak. Um, Be cool if they did, though. I mean, I can can get to 20. I mean, I could easily see 20,000 people there. When's the last time 20,000 people gathered for a political rally in South Carolina? I mean, that, 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 it would, that, that would be a phenomenal number. I mean, I don't, do, do you understand how many 20,000 people are at an airport of unregulated masses? I mean, it, it would be astounding to stand in a podium and look out. I mean, it's, it'd be like a Springsteen concert. I mean, literally, it'd be like a Beatles concert. Uh, it, you know, when you look out and see 20, 25, 30, 40,000. I mean, I've heard two serious people that I know in that world because I've asked, I said, hey, what are y'all expecting to show up? And one, well, I both actually said somewhere between thirty and forty thousand people. That's, a, I mean, that that's an astounding number. 
Um, I've heard that now it's a little bit, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of um, the when, when I read the weather predictions for Saturday today, I would rather say it's going to rain and not because these patterns change and these models change. But right now, this morning, there's an 80% chance of rain Saturday. I would rather it be 80% today than zero because by Wednesday, it'll be 80% if it's zero. And, and hopefully by Wednesday or Thursday, it'll be back to zero. I mean, these patterns and models change. They'll tell you. I mean, these long-term projections, except the climate changers. I mean, they, they, you know, they've got it figured out 50 years <laughs> in advance. But, um, yeah, yeah, when you do. look at the weather and, and it predicts, you know, rain on Saturday on a Monday, I feel more comfortable about it not raining than if they say sunny and clear. Uh, we'll we'll kind of delve over to that. Uh, got got a, some breaking news here at Wake Up Carolina. Back in just a bit. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Okay, I'm, I'm going to make you come clean on this deal, though. I am clean. Uh, <laughs> yes, and that's not what I mean. I've told you everything wrong with Gamecock Athletics right. before 615 and in the morning. You were accurate there, and I, I watched those baseball games, by the way, over the weekend. I wished I hadn't. But anyway, for what it's worth, uh, you need to come clean on the fact that you have been asked to play a role in the Trump rally this weekend. I don't want to go, though. <laughs> I know you've said that. and You've been saying that for a few weeks. You didn't want to go. But uh, they did reach out to you and ask you to be a co-chair of the event in Florence on Saturday. I got some buddies who are in that orbit who reached out to me Friday afternoon and asked me if I would be willing to serve as an honorary co-chair for the Florence rally. Uh, before I accepted, I called another buddy of mine and said, well, I need to do this, man. I don't want to get back in the middle of that stuff. I mean, I'm a Trump supporter. I've criticized Trump at certain times, and I think it's my job to criticize him when I think he's worthy of being criticized. But I'm a Trump supporter. I don't make any bones about that. You know, I was thinking about it over the weekend. Is there another Republican that could get 75 million votes? You know, we've debated that on the airways here, there, and yonder. Um, but I mean, I agreed. I mean, I did when I, when I reached out, I had two buddies of mine. They're, they're not buddies of mine. They're, they're political acquaintances and they work for Trump at the save America super PAC. And they reached out to me and said, Hey, would you mind serving as an honorary co-chair for the Florence rally? I said, let me think about it. So instead of thinking about it, I called, uh, my good friend, Robert Cahaley. And I said, Robert, I need to do this. I mean, I want to go to the beach. I want to be left alone. I don't want to bother anybody. He says, no, you need to do this. I mean, America first is in your bones. I mean, it's in your DNA. You, you, you joke around that you're Jeffersonian, libertarian, populist. You are. And you'd be nowhere, you'd be no better accepted, no more at home than at a at a Trump rally. So, yeah, I mean, I, I agreed to be an honorary coach. I do don't you, know, do you know what that I does? have no idea. And I'm going to tell you something about the Trump world now. Here's what I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. Normally, you don't find out at the last minute with presidential campaigns. Well, Trump, you do. <laughs> I mean, you just do. I mean, it, 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 there is, um, I mean, I'm sure there's a method to the madness. But it's madness. I mean, it is absolute madness. Trump is a, I mean, he's, a, he's kind of a business guy, and he bobs and he weaves and he ebbs and he flows, and at times he doesn't dot every I and cross every T. Um, I would argue he was a highly effective American president that could have that could have even been more effective had he dotted a couple of I's and crossed a couple of T's. But I would imagine sometime today or tomorrow, somebody in that Save America Super PAC world will reach out to me and let me know what my marching orders are, uh, what is expected of me. But, but yeah, I mean, you know, if the, if the guy that created the movement, America First, is going to be in my hometown and I'm asked to be a part of it, i, I got to do Better that. Better do it. I mean, I, I've got to do that. Let's go to the phone. Here's Carl. Morning, Carl. Hey, what's going on? Can you guys hear me okay? We hear you just fine, <laughs> Carl. Hey. Okay. Well, can I wish you would not uh, go to that? I'll stop listening. Um. 
let me help everybody out with what these rallies are about, particularly the ones in the airports, because I've been, I've lost count. I've been to, I know a dozen or more of them. Um, you don't have to even log on to get a ticket. So don't think that, oh, I won't get logged on or they're going to run out of tickets. They're not going to run out of tickets. The log-ons are for their internal numbers to see how many people, because he's going to, when, when Trump gets up there, he's going to, he's going to tell you how many people actually signed up and went on to the website and signed up for tickets. You can sign up on your way there. You can sign up. You can log on while you're in line. You don't even have to log. When I first went to one, I thought I had to have the ticket, and so I signed up, and then I went and printed the tickets out, and then I'm I'm coming to Charlotte with this piece of paper, and uh, they, they, they didn't even check it. But anyway, um, so, it, you know, it's going to be an event. So come early. Yes, make it a tailgater. Yes, bring your own chairs. They will have bleachers, and they will have chairs sitting in front of them. It will be it will be like a stadium. Um, and if you don't get in, show up because it, we have to have the visual of okay, we've we've shut down on Highway 76, uh, and uh, as as far back as I-95. Come there, make make it a, make it an, um, you know make it an event. Come from Orangeburg, come from Sumter, come from wherever you are coming from. You don't have to you know have a ticket in hand, but if you sign up and you got a ticket, come on in because that helps their numbers and and you know showing that people are actually signing up for this. Of course, it's going to be completely entertaining. You'll be able to watch the whole thing live on YouTube, even if you don't get in. So have your headset, have everything charged up. And bring an umbrella if it's going to rain, because he does not cancel these things. He's not going to get wet, but he will not cancel these things. Carl, what do what do you expect? I mean, how many speakers? How long do they speak? I mean, take take someone who's never been to one of these things behind the scenes, the logistics of that day. So you're saying get okay. there, bring a cooler, bring a grill, have a big time. <laughs> right. I mean, I mean seriously, I mean, Carl's making it sound like a game time Tiger I'm football game. Okay, they'll have um, a lot of music. And then they'll have people come up before he comes up, and they'll have you know, uh, you know, people who are, are officials. Um, they'll have people who are elected people come up and talk. Then when he come, when he takes the stage, he'll talk for about thirty minutes, and I mean that's the best speech you'll hear that that week. And then he'll kind of uh, start introducing people. So he'll introduce the fry guy, he'll introduce the Arrington woman, whoever, and then they'll come up and talk. And he'll introduce um, the people who are, you know, in office now that he supports. And they will come and talk. They will come and talk. So it won't be him the whole time. And then once he, you know, because that's kind of his break. And then once um, all those people have talked and, and, and riled the crowd back up, then he'll come back, and then he'll, you know, go back in, and he'll shut it down um, like only he can. But, I mean, it's just, it's awesome because, you know, he'll he'll probably have, I'm, I'm assuming he'll have uh, Tim Scott there, maybe Lindsey Graham, I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, but definitely, definitely 
um, people from, you know, the, you know, that, that are, you know, elected in this area who decides they want to, you know, go. Because, you know, PD is not a really strong Republican, you know, Republican area. Correct. But that's what, that's what he's going to have. But it'll be, it'll mainly be pushing his, because he's always there. He's always pushing the candidate that he's supporting. That was the case when he was in North Carolina and he was trying to get um, somebody to, to uh, you know, he's always getting somebody into, it's, it's, it's their rally, but he's there pushing it, of course, himself and them. And so it'll be, it'll be a lot of fun. But be there, bring your food. They'll always have plenty of facilities. So they'll have the, the porta potties and then they got bathrooms and everything. So you won't, you know, just, be rested up and be ready to put it, you know, put a day in, you know, if you get there at two o'clock, you know, you'll get a, you'll get a seat and you can keep it. But, you know, just um, don't, don't think that you can't go if you don't, um, don't get a ticket or you don't have a ticket in your hand. Don't even go, don't even bother printing it out because if you want to have it, just you can show it on the phone and that's good enough. Good deal. Thank you, Carl. Appreciate that, my man. There's somebody who's been to many of these things and is trying to tell you, uh, you know, get the ticket if you want to get the ticket, but if you don't and can't, um, come anyway, and uh, th- you'll be taken care of in some way, shape, or form. Um, I've never been to one of these. I mean, I've been to political rallies. I've spoken to a lot of political rallies. I've never been to anything like Trump brings to town. I mean, that's like the Beatles coming to town. That's like, you know, that's just a different animal when he comes to town. Um, Is it different now? He's ex-president. Obviously, there's history there because we went when he came to the Florence Center mm-hmm. and during the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you went to that. I went to that. Um, but I wonder if it's different now because of the history and where we are. I don't have any idea. I mean, I, I couldn't begin to tell you. I don't have any idea what to expect. Here's what I know. I get a call um, Friday morning from a friend of mine that I'll leave unnamed, that is very connected to the Trump campaign and asked me to be an honorary co-chair. Once again, I didn't accept. (laughs) It's my daughter's birthday. I mean, next Saturday is my daughter's birthday. So she gets to say what we do that day. And I mean, she's a big Trump fan. She's probably as big a Trump fan as there is in my family. Um, And I know once I tell her that we've got this opportunity that she will... um, she will be uh, aggressively in pursuit of forcing her dad to do everything he can so to make this so day about there. her and not Trump. <laughs> see, see, that's the danger of my daughter. Oh wow! She will, she will convince me that this is about her and not the former president coming to town, and I'll be convinced. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm that gullible as far as she's concerned. Now, either one of my boys say it, I'd say, get out of my face and go do what you're supposed to do. Um, but, but so, you know, once again, I reach out to, to, to my friend and Robert, and Robert's been on this show before, and Robert. I guess is the official pollster for the Trump campaign. Um, he's endeared himself to America first. Um, and, and, and Robert's got his handle on that group as, um, as well as anybody I know. And, and Robert said, of course you need to do this. I mean, if you've been asked to be a part of that at that degree, of course you need to be a part. I don't have any idea what's expected of me. I don't have any idea what time I need to be there. I don't have any idea. Um, am I going to be, you know, uh, holding Trump's umbrella while he speaks or am I going to be, you know, in the back row, passing out flyers. I don't have any idea. Um, and then from what I'm gathering, I may not know Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I may not know until Saturday when I get there, but uh, we'll find out as the week develops. And, um, you know, Verd's already called about it. Carl's called about it. Um, anytime a former president comes to your hometown, that's a big deal. Um, Donald Trump coming to your hometown is an even bigger deal. Carl's exactly right. 
And this is the oddity of what's happening. Um, the PD is not um, Greenville. It's not Horry County. I mean, it's not a, a heavily weighted Republican electorate. So people are going to have to come from all over if they're going to draw the 40,000 people that they're estimating. Um, that's still a big number to me. I mean, I don't know where you put 40,000 people at an airport, but Carl's been to those things I have not. I mean, airports are big. You land, you know, big jets there. So you know there's a, an abundance of room, but are you shutting down an airport to have a political rally? I mean, I can't imagine that being the case. So you set aside a certain part of the property to have this event. But um, but I would imagine there's a lot of excitement out there. You know, how many of you out there are going? Uh, do you plan on making it a tailgating sort of event? Um, Carl's an old hand at it. He told you he's been to many, many of these Trump rallies. He's kind of carried you behind the scenes a bit as to what you can expect, what you can do. So, yeah. I mean, it's like going to a NASCAR race or, a, you know, an SEC, ACC football game. Load your cooler, load your grill, you know, and, and go have a big time, I would imagine. But, um, you know, is this about Fry? Is this about Arrington? To some degree, but this is about Trump. I mean, this is about the, the energy and save America. Um, I don't know, the, uh, the, the power and influence of save America and the super PAC within you know, and is he going to run or is he not going to run in 2024? Um, you know, the, the 7th Congressional District in South Carolina, and the reason I make that the, the more central issue, it, it's in our district. I mean, you know, we broadcast in the 7th Congressional District. We don't in the 1st Congressional District. And Nancy Mace didn't vote to impeach Donald Trump. I mean, that's the uniqueness about Trump coming to town. Trump's coming to support a congressional campaign that's running against one of the 10 Republicans that voted to impeach Donald Trump and then double down. I mean, give Tom his credit. You know, he, he's not said, I, I'm sorry, I regret it. He's not done a mea culpa. He said it, I did it, and I continue to believe it was the right thing to do. Back in a minute. 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Fridays. We'll get to Ukraine and Russia in just a bit. They're just blowing the country to pieces. I mean, in essence, that is the narrative of uh, what's happening uh, Putin got frustrated because things didn't go as planned. Ukraine didn't roll over as he expected them to. So he just began blowing up everything in sight, killing innocent people. Um, even some of the uh, evacuees, the refugees that were trying to make their way out of the country, uh, they had to do a couple of ceasefires because he was making that a lot more difficult um, for people to become refugees and head out uh, to other places. Uh, but I want to go back to a question. We're talking about Trump a lot this morning, and I do think I misspoke a second ago. If I'm not mistaken, uh, the gates open at 8 a.m. Saturday morning. Uh, the event starts at about or the, the 2 o'clock. I mean, there's something about 2 o'clock. I don't know if that's when the opening act comes out <laughs> and, and does his thing in preparation for the Beatles. I mean, Trump, when he comes out at 7. But, but if I'm not mistaken, the gates open at 8 a.m. And you can go and have a big time for as long as you choose to have that big time. As Carl said, set your chair up, get there early, bring the grill, bring the bring the cooler. Um, I don't know what's allowed and what's disallowed, so I'm not saying what sort of beverage to put in your cooler. Um, do a little investigating on your own to find out what's um, allowed or disallowed. Um, and certainly don't say, well, the guy on the radio said, we could bring this Paps Blue Ribbon. No, he didn't. He's not giving any guidance at all. In, to, in regards to what you can and cannot bring. I just went to the Save America site. So the way, the way it's listed here is the events at 7 o'clock Saturday, doors open. 
even though it's outside. Doors open at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock. Yeah. Okay. So I guess you can start parking and stuff. Uh, 8 o'clock in the morning, morning. I think, is when they're going to allow people to park. And so so the the doors open at 2. The event starts at 7. Yeah, that's a five-hour window of time to, um, as they say in LSU football, get lathered up. If you choose, <laughs> what would be more rowdy than a Trump rally with everybody lathered up in the deep South? I mean, imagine Trump in the deep South, everybody having five hours to get lathered up. They think playing in Death Valley and Baton Rouge on a Saturday night is tough. Imagine, um, <laughs> it's just imagine what um, the ambiance of that moment could be if indeed uh, that were the case. Do we have a call? Let's, let's go to the phone. Uh, we do. Hi, this is Robin in Florence. Hi, Robin. Hey, how are you? Hey, hey Robert. I, I heard that uh, the rally was going to be on the side of the airport, not on the airport. I don't know if that's true behind Niagara Staff over there. Yeah, I don't you have any idea. So it's, it's on the airport grounds. That's all I know. It's somewhere on the grounds of the uh, the Florence Municipal Airport. Okay. Uh, people have already started coming in over there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I think they're going to set up tents and stuff. Really? Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Well, there's, there's, um, yeah, I didn't imagine they would have it, you know, close enough to the, uh, to the runways, you know, to impede travel and, and disrupt the, uh, the going zone of the airport, but it would be uh, on the grounds of the airport. I don't have any idea. Um, out of curiosity, one of us making ride out there one day earlier, um, this week, uh, I'm going to put Rev on the do, spot here for a do second. Some investigation. Let, let me ask you this. Uh-huh. Is this worth us, um, having a remote broadcast from? I mean, not not a not a broadcast of Wake Up Carolina. I'm not arguing with that. Right, but intermittently during the day, cut in to see if we can um, integrate ourselves into this. It's a big political event, and we profess to be the political epicenter of the PD. Um, I I would say uh, yes, it would. but it really fall on you to create some of that content. So you really have to find out your responsibilities as Mr. Co-chair of the event. I don't think it's Mr. Co-chair. I don't uh, think there's any Mr. I'm going to go ahead and refer to you as Mr. Co-chair of the Trump. If we're doing that, the honorable would be be, uh, appropriate. Uh, (laughs) Mr. Chairman. (laughs) I don't have any idea what it's going to be like. I mean, you know, I hope to find out a little more as the week goes. And I'll tell you this, man, everything I know, you'll know. I mean, as I hear things and find things out, I'll assure you uh, that you'll know. I want to go back to this question. We've got a couple of minutes here in our first hour. I want to go back and ask this question. So, I mean, I'm going into Wisconsin here in just a second about some of these senior homes and uh, some of the former Supreme Court justices' findings and some of this investigation in Wisconsin. Um, Here's kind of a hypothetical that I'll throw out there. You know, uh, there are some of us who believe that Trump is the only Republican that can lose. I mean, I can be on either side of that. On a given day, I can convince myself that Trump is the only Republican that can lose. And the next day, I may believe he's the only Republican that can win. Here's the question. Trump got nearly 75 million votes. If Trump runs again and gets 75 million, is that enough to win? The follow-up to that is, give me another Republican that can get 75 million votes. Can Ron DeSantis get 75 million votes? Can Josh Hawley get 75 million votes? I mean, we know nobody outside of the America First movement can, correct? I mean, we know that Mitt Romney ain't getting 75 million votes. John Kasich is not getting 75 million votes. The only candidate that has proven to be able to get 75 million votes in a Republican or as a Republican presidential candidate is Donald Trump. 
If Trump runs and gets 75 million again, is that enough? In other words, has have the Republican legislatures in these several states done enough to control some of the uh, some of the pandemic related voting? There you go. The rigging. Well, I mean, not the pandemic relating <laughs> voting. The stealing. Well, I mean, the pandemic related <laughs> voting. The cheating. The pandemic related <laughs> voting. <laughs> Yes. It uh, seems to all me of that. <laughs> that in some of these states, the Republicans have done some good work in regards to the pandemic-related voting. If they have done a good enough job addressing some of the issues that the pandemic-related voting brought about, is $75 million enough? And can anybody else get to 75 million votes? That's kind of what I struggle with. Because I think Trump brings a lot of energy. There's no doubt you'll see a lot of that energy this Saturday in Florence. But he also brings about a lot of energy on the other side. I mean, he motivates both bases. I mean, nobody can deny that. I don't care how big a Trump supporter you are. you, you got to accept that he not only um, drives enthusiasm amongst his supporters, he drives enthusiasm amongst his detractors. Would you today, I mean, if Vegas gave odds and said Trump gets $75 million, does he win or lose? You say what, Rev? Mm. Just kind of ponder on that as we take our yeah, break. We'll be one. back in just a couple of minutes. Takes Mondays to make Fridays. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Boudreaux in Orangeburg listening to WTQS. Hey, Boudreaux. Good morning. Uh, it sounds like y'all going to have a big time this Saturday. Uh, I'd, I'd love to go. I'll be on the other end of the state in Greenwood headlining the comedy show. But I tell you, if you had to talk to the president, I believe if he'd shave his head and grow a goatee, he'd get 85 million votes. And his slogan could be breaking America bad again. I don't know. Just a thought. I wake up thinking stupid stuff sometime there, Ken. But uh, hope y'all have a hell of a time. And I'm, I'm with you. I don't think anybody can get those kind of votes except uh, Trump. But, but thank you, Boudreaux. Appreciate the call. The, th- the point I'm trying to make, and it kind of cuts both ways, If let, let's hypothetically say DeSantis runs. I mean, he's trump light, right? I mean, do we agree with that? He's, yeah. kinda, he's trump light. If DeSantis runs, does he need $75 million to win? Because once again, Trump is a political energy on both sides of the equation. Um, it's a little bit like nobody's rallied America like uh, Zelensky, you know, the president of Ukraine, really Putin. Um, well, I mean, Zelensky's reactions to Putin have inspired many people in the Western world to, be, to, to get more involved than they said they would before the fact. So if Trump runs, he probably needs to get $75 million because not only does he um, drive enthusiasm with his voters, the Republican voter, he also drives enthusiasm. I mean, could, for, DeSantis, for and against. could DeSantis run, uh, get $68 million and win? Trump can't win with $68 million. Trump could win with 75 million. Cato and a lot of us think he he won uh, before. I want to go into this in just a second because mm-hmm. um, I've advised our listeners as voters and political enthusiasts. I've I've advised us to not pay much attention to the 2020 presidential election. I think looking back does not serve as well. Um, but but this this report out of Wisconsin um, was exactly what Trump should have been doing when they were talking about. Uh, voting machines and reprogramming computers and microchips that, you know, you'd cast a ballot for candidate X and it would actually be cast for candidate Y. 
that gets a little bit sci-fi as far as I'm concerned. But when you do what the um, what the former Supreme Court justice did, who was appoint, appointed special counsel in Wisconsin, and there are about 90,000 people living in senior homes in the state of Wisconsin. Nearly 100% of those 90,000 people voted. That's pretty bizarre to me. Now, now Biden won Wisconsin by about 20,000 votes. The historic average is about 63%. So a little less than two of every three people in senior homes vote. This uh, past presidential election, it was about 97%. Let's go to the phone. Yeah, ask yourself, does that make sense? What do you mean? The common sense test. Right. Here's Marion and Marion. Hello, Marion. Hey, how y'all doing today? Hey, Marion and Marion. It's a long-time listener, first time calling y'all. This subject uh, with Trump. I was thinking that uh, Trump is about like the acid in a battery. Uh, without that acid, you don't have that strong left or strong right, that positive or negative. So uh, that's why I think that Trump, he works up the center, the inside of the, the battery or the voting and causes it to polarize and becomes extreme right, extreme left. Your thought on that. Thank you, Marion. But, but, yeah, I mean, you're exactly right on the analogy. But, but it's, not, it's not hard right, hard left. I mean, Trump's not a right winger. I mean, give me a policy that Trump is a, uh, an orthodox conservative. I mean, I, I don't know of anything. I mean, Trump doesn't deal with the budget. How many times did Trump cut spending? How many cut taxes? Okay, there you go. I mean, that, that would be an intellectual conservative move. I mean, Trump cut taxes. But, but that's about it. I mean, everything else he does is based on his belief that the sovereignty of nations should be supreme, that, that I am a nationalist. I'm an unapologetic nationalist. We're going to do things because we believe they're in the best interest of America. It's not a political science course at Harvard or a business class at Oxford. I mean, these are the things that we believe. I was thinking about this over the weekend. When I got, I mean, when someone reached out to me from the Club for Growth and asked me to come down and sit, spend some time in Myrtle Beach about this 7th Congressional um, District race, uh, I accepted because I'm, I'm curious about that. I wanted to know how in the world the Club for Growth is going to align itself with Donald Trump. I mean, the Club for Growth has historically been, um, you know, one of these traditional conservative movements, trickle-down economics, so supply-side economics. you wanted to interview them as much as they interviewed well, I mean, I just you. wanted to hear what they had to say. They wanted to hear what I had to say. I wanted to hear what they had to say. And during the, the back-and-forth, we were talking about China. Interesting. Now, we're talking about China a lot because of this uh, relationship they have cultivated with Russia. But during the back and forth, one of the um, one of the three people from the Club for Growth said, so you support tariffs. And I said, against China, I do. I mean, philosophically, I oppose tariffs. But, but the Club for Growth has these stances. You know what I mean? They're, they're like, uh, tariffs are bad. Well, I mean, tariffs are bad. Tariffs aren't good for the economy. But, but on certain, in, in certain situations, in certain times, I think tariffs are appropriate. And I think today, dealing with China, the only way to get their attention is tariffs. Is, is that intellectually conservative? No, of course not. But it's based on, um, in the moment, what you believe is in your country's best interest. So for those that try to say Trump's a right-winger or, or he serves the right-wing base, I would argue that a lot of the, the conservative movement in America find Trump very confusing. When he does this or that or the other, he's not an orthodox conservative. 
I mean, I think he's more conservative than he is liberal. Let me ask you a question, Cato. Do you really believe, I mean, you're a big Trump supporter. Do you really, and you want him to run again. Yeah. I mean, do you really believe that Trump is that concerned with gay marriage? Not at all. No. I mean, I I doubt very seriously he's that concerned. Do you think Trump is that concerned with the debt? None. No. I mean, he's not (laughs) concerned at all with the debt. Um, So we got social conservatives who wanted to be a social warrior and, you know, uh, marriage is between a man and a woman. And the redefining of the word marriage that is assault on religion and, and Judeo-Christian values and a biblical worldview. You agree with that? I agree with that. Trump probably agrees with it, but he's not very concerned by it. He's not bo- very bothered with it. The, the National Review conservative wants Trump to set aside or set up a budget that is, um, you know, uh, no deficit spending. What, what did Trump do? He cut taxes. So, so the government had less revenue coming in. Did he cut spending correspondingly? No. I mean, Trump's not a, he's not an orthodox conservative. I think he is an embodiment of what this country needs, and that is politicians who are going to put the interests of this country first. I mean, you know, that, that's the nature of what he's talking about today. And Chris Christie defended Trump. I mean, Christie's been real complicated on Trump. And I think the, the reason Chris Christie has been very complicated in complimenting or, or, or not complimenting the former president is his burning desire to be president. I think Christie has a burning desire to be a president. I think he, he, he believes that um, he was the bombastic, you know, in-your-face New Yorker or New Jersey governor. He's not a New Yorker from New Jersey, but you know where I'm headed. I mean, he was the aggressive guy. I mean, he was the street fighter. He was the bull in the china shop until Trump shows up. And I think Christie's never gotten over that. I think Christie believed that there was a, a political appetite in America for someone like that. And he could get in your face. I, you, I taught those teachers unions a, a lesson. You know, I stood down the, 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 the Democrat General Assembly in the state of New Jersey and taught them a lesson. And Christie felt like it was, it was his moment in time to be the, uh, the front runner in the Republican 2020 presidential He's right. Primary. There was an appetite. just sure. wasn't him. I mean, it wasn't him because he was not in your face enough. He was not as aggressive enough. And he's cut both ways with Trump. But Christie said yesterday, on George Stephanopoulos' show, that Trump armed Ukraine more than any president has. Uh, George Carl tried to push back on that. But, I mean, Carl's there's a, it's kind of interesting. Carl's a journalist, but it doesn't take much to turn him into a political pundit. I mean, he's a hack. He, he's, a, he's a propagandist for Say the political. Carl, is that Stephanopoulos or? Let me just Carl. Oh, John uh, Carl? John Carl, not George. George Stephanopoulos, John Carl. Uh, John Carl is there uh, as a member of the, um, the, the power roundtable. You know, they have gotcha. Donna Brazile and, and John Carl and some other, uh, she was, I think, a female, uh, professing to be a journalist, but we know she's not Mostly a journalist. Democrat operative. Yeah, well, I mean, then you had Chris Christie carry the water for the American Republican Party now, and sometimes he carries it well, and sometimes he does not. But he talked about, you know, a couple of things that Trump did, and he said, hey, you know, you can like the guy or not, but he, he armed Ukraine, and we were producing a lot of energy. And that put Putin kind of in a dilemma. I mean, there was an issue there. If Ukraine is going to be fundamentally armed with the latest, greatest fighting technology that America has and America's producing oil, Putin's got to bide his time. I mean, he's got to wait idly by and wait on some of these things to sort themselves out. Well, the next thing you know, Joe Biden gets elected. Biden in January stopped funding the Ukraines, excuse me, stopped arming the Ukraines and stopped producing as much energy as America has by about four and a half million barrels a day. 
I mean, that's about the energy difference today than when Trump was the president. It's uh, between three and a half and four and a half million barrels less per day of oil. Um, what a colossal mistake. Well, I mean, it's, it's a terrible mistake, Reb. And, and, and of all the things they've decided to do, this is not on the table. I mean, they're talking about embargoing Russian oil. But nobody in Washington with a D beside their name except Joe Manchin is saying we've got to produce more energy in this country. I looked this morning at the U.S. Energy Information Administration. It's called the EIA. I mean, that's kind of the, um, that would be the Washington think tank, all things energy related. Um, we're burning about a about about 100 million barrels a day. I mean, that, that's the conversion rate. I mean, in other words, 100 million barrels of oil a day turn into as much energy as we need. And it's not just energy. It's shingles. I mean, we know that there are a lot of products out there, tires that have petroleum, have oil, oil-based paints. I mean, they're, 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 uh, it's not just oil, excuse me, it's not just gas, diesel, and kerosene, and jet fuel, and rocket fuel, and all these other sorts of things. Oil is, it's very diverse. I mean, it's in a lot of things we consume in our, in our global economy. But I went and looked. That's some of the uh, some of the oil production in 2020. You know how many barrels a day we were producing in 2020? About 20, about 19 million barrels a day, and we're at about 14 and a half, 15 million barrels today. Um, there have been some months we produced about 16 million, but we're about four and a half million barrels per day less right now than we were. We're we're importing about 500 and 75,000 barrels per day from Russia. Um, here's, the, here's the interesting part of this EIA report, uh, the Energy Information Administration. Um, China produces only about 4.86 million barrels per day, but they consume about 15 million barrels per day. So China has a production deficit, production consumption deficit of 10 million barrels a day. Guess where half of that production is being made up? Russia. And the new deal, the 5,000-word deal, and I put something on Facebook over the weekend. Um, I don't know, Rev. There's this frustration I have with some Americans who believe that we're, we're, we're destined to greatness just because we're America, just because we built our country on Judeo-Christian values, and just because Thomas Jefferson was so articulate in the way he wrote the Declaration of Independence, that we're just destined to always be great. It's a great ideal. It's a great principle. It's a great notion. We're the great Americans, and nothing will ever change. No matter how much blood is shed in Ukraine, no matter how brutal a dictator Vladimir Putin may be, we're Americans, and we're destined to that great way of life. We're destined to sitting in our homes on a Saturday night and watch Coach K conclude a 42-year-old, a 42-year basketball career against his arch rival, North Carolina. That's our birthright. And that We've done you. so much good for the world. Yeah, it irks me to no end. I mean, it, 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 it really concerns me more than it irks me because nothing about that is true. We don't deserve a damn thing. I mean, we're not destined to be anything except what we choose to be destined to be. And, I mean, I think it was uh, Churchill who said, you know, freedom is one generation from extension. And, uh, I mean, nothing could be more true than that. And, uh, you know, I was kind of, I'm going to be insulting here, and I probably shouldn't do it because it's unfair to the kids. 
But when Coach K loses his last home game against North Carolina, I'm watching these rich, spoiled, affluent white kids cry as if the world is falling apart. While there are Ukrainian counterparts being slaughtered in the street, choosing to take up arms and, and, you know, man the post. How many of those Duke students would man the post if it was required of them to man the post? They'd be in Canada before you could bat your eye because they're <laughs> destined to not be shot at. They're destined to be at a, uh, an elite academic institution. They're destined to have a Starbucks cup and a polo shirt. They're destined to be able to drive an Audi, a Volvo, or a Mercedes or a B. That's our birthright. We're destined to do that because we're America. And eventually, destiny will prevail. No matter what Putin does in Ukraine, destiny will prevail. Somebody forgot to tell Putin and Xi that. Because these are extremely serious people putting together an extremely serious game plan that will change our destiny if we're not willing to confront it in a way that I think is required. And I watch these kids, bless their heart, I mean, they're crying their eyes out because Duke lost to North Carolina in Coach K's last home game. A storied career came to a very unfortunate conclusion. And we weep because we're destined. Now, now once again, these are privileged, by and large, affluent, by and large, spoiled, by and large, white kids, by and large, who believe that their destiny is already settled. That's insane that we've convinced ourselves of that. Back in a minute. You know, that could be a very interesting topic in itself is what is our destiny? I mean, is our, you know, th- th- there are these uh, predestined and, uh, re- Kato, we'll get into religion here. So some of the, the predestination yeah. parts of religion. Um, I mean, I, I'm, for one, I mean, I, I don't buy fate. I mean, I, I don't believe in fate. I think you make your own fate. Um I don't believe in predestination. I think you have a right to live your life as you choose, and uh, you win some, you lose some, some get rain. I think God gave us a free will. I think that free will allows you to make choices. I think those choices dictate your destiny. Think God's surprised by anything? No, not at all. Not not in the least, least bit. I think God's the Alpha and the Omega. I mean, I think he's controlled every second of every universe that has ever has been and every second of every universe that will be, but I don't think he's going to stop you from doing something stupid today if you choose to. I think he's, he's going to stop me. Now, now, do I think God can rescue Ukraine today? Yeah. But I think if it was God's will, for whatever reason, and here's where we get real goofed up, trying to understand God. God, why do you let these innocent people get slaughtered? I don't have any idea. I mean, I can't begin to fathom. I have no comprehension of that. And, and the smartest thing I can say is that. I mean, you know, to, to me, Humanity needs to demonstrate a little humility at times in situations like this uh, because I hear a lot of people say, well, here's why God does it. or Here's why God does not do it. No, I don't have any idea why God does it or does not do it. Um, Do I believe that God in heaven could rescue the people of Ukraine from Russian violence this morning? Yes, absolutely I do. I think he could topple uh, the communist army by, by noon if he chose to. But why he does not choose to, I can't begin to comprehend. And, and I don't worry much with that. Um, but, but I'll go back to destination or, or destiny or not. I think that my destiny and my fate is in my hands. Now, now at times when I make a series of good decisions and I end up on the good side of whatever it is I'm dealing with, 
I, I can be tempted by fate. You know what I mean? I can say, man, that was just, that, that's the way that was supposed to work out. But it wouldn't have worked out that way if I had to make those three or four good decisions. Same thing on the alternate. Same thing when I do these stupid things and I have in a bad place. And I'm like, wow. Well, I mean, as fate would have it. No, fate didn't have that. That's you being stupid. I mean, the reason you're in that situation or that predicament is you are stupid. Do, do I believe those are teaching moments? Yeah. Do I believe those are blessed moments? Yeah, absolutely I do. But I don't know how, I mean, and I think you can believe this. I think you can believe that God is in control of every single second of every single day from the beginning to the end, but he allows our free will to impact every single second of every single day from beginning to end. And I know there's some religions that don't buy into that. I mean, I'm well aware that there's some religions out there that have kind of a counter narrative. I say decrees what our free will is. Now I, I, I'm just getting funky here now, but I'm just saying, well, you can get funky because I, I got some breaking news on Cato here in just a second. He and I talked a little bit this morning. Um, I think somebody's calling in here now, but, um, yeah, cato has been with us three years, Yeah, about three yeah. years. He's over there doing a take in call. I think if I'm not mistaken, <laughs> he's a uh, chatty and chummy as he always is <laughs> on, on a Monday morning. Cato's the chummiest guy you'll ever meet in your life, but he's had another opportunity come along and Friday Springsteen Friday is the, um, <laughs> so, so Cato in, uh, out Time of respect, perfectly. The, the ultimate compliment I can give you is to let you choose the Springsteen song that we play this Friday oh, that wow. will be your last day with us here Ooh. at Wake Up um, Choose Carolina. well, my friend. What uh, I mean, Cato's been with us three years, Cato? Is almost that right? three. Yeah. And Friday will be your last day, yeah. if I'm not mistaken. We're going to miss you. And I mean that Man, sincerely. We're, we're, um, we've tried our best to freak you out and scare you to death. <laughs> And we're going to send you out of the world to freak other people out and scare other people and other people to death. But you've done a phenomenal job. And, I, and we'll, we'll kind of we'll, we'll talk more about this as the week progresses. But um, I think a lot of our listeners deserve to know, um, not just the day of, but to give a week to kind of, you know, send you off on your way and wish you nothing but the absolute best. And I mean that sincerely. And I know Rev means, means it as well. Absolutely. Let's go to the phone. We have Chad in Coward up next. Hey, Chad. Hey guys, I uh, just wanted to uh, throw in a quick little. Well, the pastor in me just had to throw in a quick little uh, remark to Ken's commentary this morning. Uh, but I didn't realize Cato was about to leave. And hey, uh, best of my, the best in the world to you. Uh, I've enjoyed hearing you on here as well. And uh, and and I'm sure you've probably already you've already probably thrown in your two cents about. Uh, what Ken's talking about here this morning about, you know, not, not understanding why God would allow something like this, um, going on in Ukraine or something where well, you see, first of all, I'd just like to say that the Bible clearly says, and I actually, uh, it, what reminded me of this, I actually used this yesterday in one of my sermons, but, um, the Bible clearly says that man might devise his own plan, but God directs his steps. So you've got that going for us, but then, Another part of it is we don't always see the big picture. God says our knowing is not his knowing, our ways are not his ways, and we don't always see the big picture, and we're not always going to see the big picture. Um, quick little story uh, here. When when Lazarus died and Jesus was headed to go see him, Mary and Martha, all they saw was that their uh, their friend wasn't there. You know, there's Jesus, if you would have been here, we could have we, we could have had our brother still. You would have, you would have, you would have helped him out. You would have healed him, and he wouldn't have died on us. Well, 
what they didn't see was while their brother died, way over here on the other side of town, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but he said, you know, our friend, my friend Lazarus, my friend Lazarus has died, and I'm going to go wake him up. And they said, well, if he's sleeping, that's good. He said, no, you don't understand. He died, and I'm going to go show this world exactly who I am. So basically, in a nutshell, is all they saw was what was right in front of them. They didn't see the entire big picture that that God always has in store. He always has a plan. He always has a bigger picture. And just because we don't see it and understand it doesn't mean it's not there. So I just wanted to share that with you. I hope you guys have a great day. I'm a huge fan of the show, and uh, I tune in every morning. So uh, you guys have a great day, and I'll let you take it from there. Thank you, Chad. Appreciate that. But I mean, the, the fundamental debate, I mean, this is not, let me, that's unfair. My fundamental debate, why does God allow evil? I mean, I understand death. Death is a part of life, right? Every life comes to an eventual end. Some happen at, at, at 29 years old like my sister. Some happen at 95 or 100 years old like some of these, some of these folks in Wisconsin that voted in the last presidential election. Evil's the, the point I don't understand. You know, why does God allow evil in the world? I mean, I understand death. I understand despair. I understand heartache. I understand heartbreak. I said it on the airways before. I think grief is the price we pay for loving. I mean, that's a humanistic emotion, but evil. I mean, it just, you know, someone invading a sovereign nation and things not going their way, and the next thing you know, they just begin carpet bombing and slaughtering, and, I mean, innocent people just bomb their homes, you know, turn them into refugees as they're trying to evacuate that, that nation. Um, you, you bomb them again. I mean, I, I don't understand that. I mean, you know, what? That, that's the point I'm trying to make. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a theological scholar. I've not spent an enormous part of my life trying to understand that. But I think from a, from a human perspective, you, you question that. You know, why in the world would God? I mean, once again, I understand why God would allow death because every life eventually ends. I mean, the repopulating of the planet, the circle of life, as Rafiki and um, all of the characters from Lion King <laughs> would talk about. But, but evil is a different animal. And I think when you look at what's happening in Ukraine— I mean, to me, it embodies evil. I mean, that, that you know, uh, territorial disputes, um, famine and war and, you know, uh, political discontent, pol- geopolitics. I, I get all that. But, but God allowing evil into the world is something that I've stewed on many, many, many times and have never fully comprehended. But, but once again, I'm convinced of two things. There is a God in heaven, and I ain't him. And some things I don't fully comprehend, nor can make heads or tails of. Let's go to the phone. Our next caller is Breeze. Hey, Breeze, you're on the air. What do you say? Hey, Kitty, listen, I want to apologize. It's really my fault. Those guys called me to do that thing Saturday. <laughs> but I told them Saturday is my squat day, and I devote the rest of the afternoon to general badassery. I said, why don't you call Kid Art? He don't do nothing on a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Breeze. Thank you for having me on top of the list. Yeah, but look here. You know, I heard a guy, and I don't know who he was, uh, he made the comment that Democrats don't have uh, foreign um, enemies. They have political enemies. And that means they will align themselves with whomever will help them defeat their political enemies here in America. So they don't really care. And I guess this who they line themselves up with. I mean, 
throughout the 70s and 80s, if you talked to any Democrat, you'd have thought that uh, Russia was uh, our best friend. If you have heard uh, Member Mitt Romney said Russia was our biggest threat, and dang old uh, Barack Obama said somebody let tell them that, uh, you know, you know, the Cold War is over, Mick. Y'all, uh, you know, walked on the 80s, walked there. You remember that? Yeah, when the 80s went their foreign policy back. Yeah. Yeah, they all were laughing at this, that, and the other. So it doesn't matter to them. They have no morals, no God. But then uh, another thing I've noticed is, is people keep saying that Republicans like Tucker Carlson, and I guess I would follow that, are uh, apologizing or supporting Putin. Well, I've listened to every one of Tucker's commentaries, and never once did I hear him say that Putin is a good man, that he supports Russia in this in this war. I haven't heard anybody that Republicans say that hey, it's uh, it's, it's not it's, it's, you know we need to give Putin a break, blah blah blah. Nobody's saying that, but they're turning that narrative, and they're turning that narrative for a reason. And so, and then that goes back to the whole thing with COVID, and I had somebody say, well, you know, you had all these deaths. I said, well, you know, you can blame that old, you can blame anyone that died from, not with, but from COVID. You can blame that old politics, because there were medicines out there that the doctors would have been allowed to give them that they got, that they could have saved a lot of these lives. So your, so your party's politics killed, killed most of these people. I said, and now you're looking at the gas prices. And my question is, the average, and again, you hear the Democrats say we're trying to save democracy, and we got enemies in our country that are trying to destroy democracy. Well, I wonder how many Democrat voters in South Carolina are willing to pay $5 a gallon for gas and be dumb enough to think that the reason gas is $5 is just because of Putin. Now, I don't, and I'm not apologizing for Putin. I don't want to buy crap for Putin, but you and I both know Again, I said this before, we aren't, we aren't daggone geniuses, but we damn sure know that we can drill for our own oil, and that would lower the price of oil. Just announcing that fact that we're opening up all pipelines, we're taking away all restrictions, it's a state of emergency. Even Elon Musk, who sells electric cars, said we need to do that. So how many Democrat voters are willing to pay $5 a gallon for gas, and some say they're going to be paying $7 or more. How many of those people are willing to pay that for gas to now go follow their God, known as the Democrat Communist Party and, and, and government? Because we don't have to be paying this. It was just like the previous recession. It was bought on, brought, it was man-made. It was made by dumb decisions or decisions made on purpose. And I'll tell you right now, when you purposely close down all the domestic drilling, you are purposely daggone raising the price of oil, and you're purposely daggone empowering Putin. You're doing it on purpose. And how many of these voters will call, force the Democrats and force Biden, if he had one ounce of sense that where he cared about the American people, he would announce it in two minutes right now. Hey, this is over, guys. We've we're, we're got to produce oil. This is, yeah, but will he do it is the question. And do you think he'll do it? No, thank you, Breeze. Appreciate that. Well, I mean, life politics, it reflects life in general. I mean, life is a big barter. 
I mean, it, it may be an unspoken barter, but we're always bar- we're bartering with other people. We're bartering with ourselves. In some relationships, we have a lot of leverage. In others, we don't have much leverage at all. Um, and a lot of our decisions are based on the, the amount of leverage we have or don't have in this situation. Um, and and we, we have a lot of leverage that we're choosing to not play. Th- this is, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin invading Ukraine. It's, it's, it, it does not put us in a no-win position or a place where we don't have any good options. There are a lot of good options on the table. Um, Chris Christie talked a little bit about some of that yesterday on George Stephanopoulos' show by talking about arming Ukraine. And But but the most important thing we can do is become energy independent. And, and, it's, and it's almost like th- there's this big complication that has to happen uh, for that to take place, and that's just not the case. Now, now the liberals and a lot of the, the political elites will try to lead you to believe this is the most complicated um, issue we'll ever address in America. It's, it's, it's really not. I mean, it's honestly not. We have an abundance of natural resources that we've agreed to not extract. I mean, we, the, the, political, the political, the country, I mean, the, the, the leaders of our country have agreed to not extract uh, a percentage of natural resources that it takes for us to be energy independent. Um, there was an election that was certified. There was a man who was sworn in as president. So the country agreed that this is the guy's going to make the policy decisions based on what he perceives to be in America's best interest. So it's not Putin's fault. It's basically the squad who's running the radical left agenda that this president has adopted. Do, do we, do right? we, do we or not, do we, do we or do we not live in a representative republic? We do. do did we or did we not have an election in 2020? <laughs> we did. Did, did. Joe Biden, or did Joe Biden not get certified the winner of the 2020 presidential election? He was sworn in as president of the United States. Does Joe Biden have or have not executive authorities to do certain things that we agree or disagree with? He 100% does. Okay. It's not Putin's fault that gas is $4 a gallon. It's America's fault that that our consumers are paying 4 bucks a gallon for gas. Get ready for about four fifty, maybe by the end of this week. Oh. Take a break. Back in just a minute. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Here's Josh in Florence. Morning, Josh. You're on the air. Hey, morning, man. I, I, I had a quick question for you, and I'll hang up and listen. Um, I don't know if anyone's asked this yet, but I, I saw where, you know, Biden, I think we've already given some weapons to Ukraine, and I saw what they were talking about, maybe giving some planes to uh, Poland, and Poland would give the Russian-made planes to the Ukraine. Uh, my question is two two parts. One, when we're giving weapons like that, planes, uh, missiles, whatever, uh, does it have an impact on, 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 I guess, taxes for the American people? Are we paying for that? And the second question is, it amazes me that that's never been considered an act of war. If Putin is talking about uh, sanctions being an act of war, why, why wouldn't you consider giving weapons to a country an act of war? Thank you. Appreciate that. I think it is an act of war. I mean, I think, I think we've indirectly declared war on Russia. I think the Western world, I don't think just the United States of America, I think the Western world has responded. I mean, you know, there was a, de- whether they sign a deck, look, a contract is a contract is a contract. I mean, you know, we got these treaties and, 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 and you know, trilateral commissions, and out of that comes a, um, some working document that is refined and edited. And, you know, um, the leader of Turkey signs and the leader of America signs, um, that, that's kind of the, that would be the academic exercising of American politics. And then you've got the real world. And, and, and some people don't care if they signed a contract or not. 
I mean, if an opportunity presents itself, then, then we go there. I did read something over the weekend. And from what I'm gathering, because I was asking the same questions, if we're offering, um, you know, military fighting equipment out of our arsenal, does it weaken us? Uh, in other words, Cato, me, Rev, you, our listener, uh, you pay taxes, you fund the American military, and the American military leadership decides to give Ukraine, you know, 100 planes or 50 planes or what were they basically doing from what I'm gathering? They have surplus fighting equipment. They have planes and tanks and, and you know, nu- uh, not nuclear, um, uh, weaponry and armaments that are no longer, uh, they're outdated. I mean, they're, they're not our best, and we didn't use them. So, you know, somebody's having trouble, a neighbor or friend's having trouble, but here's what they've done. What what we have that we're not even using, we, we consider these this weaponry outdated, but it's still better than what Poland has. So we give Poland our outdated, antiquated weaponry. Poland gives uh, Ukraine the weapons it has. I mean, that's how much superiority we have in, uh, in warfare. In global warfare, there is no rival to the United States. I mean, we are extremely capable. I mean, I, you know, far more capable than any other planet you, and than any other country on this planet. How much we spend on ours well, compared I mean, to other countries. We spend about, I mean, you can argue $600 billion. I argue it's $800 because there's some indirect funding we do with the American military. Um, I mean, salaries. I mean, if we're paying... If we're paying retirement benefits for um, people to retire for the American Armed Services, isn't that a military spend? I mean, isn't that military spending? I mean, you join the Army. You serve 20 years. You get somewhat of a retirement. You get health care. You get some pension. Uh, that money comes out of the general fund. Isn't that military spending? I mean, of course it yeah. is. So I would argue that the number's probably $800 billion. China spends about $250 billion. Russia spends about 175 or 80 billion. We spend more than the other 10 countries put together. But as we've established on this show, are we properly accounting for the expenditures? You know, $100 billion a year spent lobbying Washington. I mean, imagine that. $100 million. There are people working in Washington this morning on behalf of McDonnell Douglas, General Dynamics, Honeywell. Boeing. I mean, you, you know the suspects. You know the, the, the list of companies that do a lot of, the, I don't want to say the line share, but, but a lot of defense contracting work. We know who they are. They spend $100 million a year annually lobbying the federal government for whatever it is they're trying to get accomplished. Do you believe all of that money is properly accounted for? Not the $100 million, but but the the you got the hundred million trying to convince the American people to spend eight hundred billion. I mean, it's probably one of the most. I mean, it's probably the best investment the defense contractors could make to go see a senator, go see a member of Congress to suggest that this is um this is being underfunded. We need to spend more money here, more money, more money there. I mean, I don't know why. It's almost like we are hesitant to criticize military spending. I would argue that education and military spending are probably where we get least bang for the buck than any other expenditure we, the taxpayers, fund. I mean, we have an almighty and all-powerful military. How successful has it been? I mean, just kind of stew on that for a second. We spend $800 billion a year 
in one way, shape, or form funding the American fighting machine. When we left Afghanistan, what did it look like? When we left Iraq, what did it look like? When we left Vietnam, what did it look like? I just think in the name of keeping Americans safe, we failed to appropriately criticize the level of military spending and the accountability that is necessary to make sure the Americans are getting banged for their buck, literally and figuratively. Back in a minute. Me some coffee, man, to wake up this morning. I'm a kind of a creature of decaf. I've gotten myself convinced that caffeine spikes my blood pressure. I read a lot about coffee over the last week. Um, oh, you did? Yeah. The um, do tell. Well, I mean, we believe that the um, the Chinese talking about China. We believe the Chinese uh, discovered caffeine about a thousand BC. We believe that coffee came about in Ethiopia at around 800 A.D., somewhere thereabout. So caffeine was discovered by the Chinese, or the oldest culture in, in the world, um, somewhere around 1000 B.C., 1,800 years later, there was a, um, from, from what I understand, a farmer in Ethiopia whose goats got a hold of some berries from a plant and began, like, being, you know, just more energetic. And, you know, the farmer being the industrious sort, the entrepreneurial spirit in him came around. And um, because, Rev, if you think about it, I'll, I'll freak out here for a second. Um, the majority of civilization historically has centered around the rhythms of the sun. When the sun is up, we're industrious, we're productive, we do things. When the sun goes down, historically, we have shut down. And I'm talking about pre-industrial revolution, obviously. And then... Um, then, you know, we began industrializing and we can have lights and, and, you know, we can work at night and all these other sorts of things. I'll give you an example. Do you believe the coffee break is good for you or the business? I mean, I'll use Cato as an example. Cato, what, yeah. what is a coffee break something that the company gives to you as a reward for being a productive employee or something they give to you in hopes that, that you'll become a more productive employee? I think it's something they probably ought to give to maybe be a more productive well i mean the strategy in corporate america behind the coffee break was let these people drink caffeine and they'll be more productive (laughs) because by and large once again civilization worked on the rhythms of the sun and caffeine i don't want to say caffeine broke the stranglehold the rhythm of the suns had on our annex and behavior but we would we would be productive during the day not so much at night and in about 800 AD, we discovered, you know, coffee. And so, yeah, but the coffee break, when you believe the company you work for is allowing you to have a five-minute coffee break in the morning because they just love you and they appreciate what you do for the business, no, it's to amp you up and make you more productive. I mean, that, that's why we have coffee breaks. Businesses well, are not devious. going to give you anything for nothing. I mean, they're in the business of doing what? Being good employees or making money? Money, I mean, we money. hope they're good employees, but their business is, uh, their motivation is to be profitable. So they're out to make money. So somebody in a business one day said, hey, remember that farmer back at 800 AD and those goats that had so much energy because they ate the berries off that tree? Why don't we try that with some of these employees? Why don't we convince them that we're doing this because we love them when in reality we're doing it because we want them to be more productive and a little shot of caffeine makes us all a little more productive. So there, 
There's your coffee tutorial uh, this Monday see, a, lot, a lot of times the, the company will buy the coffee. So now I know the ulterior motive. It's deception, Rev. Mm. Corporate America is always deceiving we, the American worker. And, le and leave it to you to find out. Yeah. Do we're the deep dive. You. We're on to you, corporate America. Let's go to the phone. Here is Jamie. Morning, Jamie. Good morning, fellas. Um, Ken, I'm, I'm holding you personally accountable uh, for Cato leaving, and it, it upsets me. Uh, every time y'all get a new, new fella, um, you know, like the last young fella you had, I, I didn't like him at first, and uh, then I got kind of like a stray dog. You kind of get used to them, and you start petting them, and, and they become wonderful friends. Well, same thing with Cato, and now he's leaving. You need to up the ante and keep him, bud. That's my word. Thank you, Jam. <laughs> I, I am not in charge of that. I mean, the Cato know, fan club this morning. Well, I mean, well, we expected that. I mean, Cato yeah. said, hey, if you don't mind, tell everybody I'm leaving, not not Friday, but today, so we can have a week we of have celebrating week, right. and, and bidding me and bidding me farewell. <laughs> I'm sure that's uh, exactly Kato, how well, I, mean, I didn't know until last week. You've known several weeks. I, mm -hmm. I didn't know until last week because I don't know much. I just host the show um, <laughs> and run my mouth for four hours every morning about whatever it is we deem topical. But, I mean, Cato's been with us three years. Um He's one of the most chummy guys I've ever known in my life. And and I, I kind of labeled him that to begin with, but that's his nature. Um, it, it got to a point in Cato's world, though. This is pretty funny. Rev and I kind of <laughs> laughed at you, Cato, about this. Cato <laughs> wants to be nice to everybody. And he's learned, I think. I don't know if the word's in his mouth. Yeah. You can't be nice to everybody. Because um, we've asked our listeners, if you want to call in and go on the air, call in and go on the air. If you don't want to go on the air, don't call in. <laughs> Because Cato doesn't have yeah. the time. Yeah, don't, don't, don't. When he answers the phone, you don't say, "Hey, tell Ken this." That's not his job. No. I mean, he, he can't do that job while he's doing this other job. That is a part of what he's over there. If people uh, had, a, if there was a camera in here and you could see what's going on, there's so many moving parts at times. It's like, ooh, man, it'll it'll raise your blood yeah, pressure. It, yeah, a little bit. it requires concentration but, and no distraction. But he's such a chummy soul. And he's a Bible thumper. And you know how nice those people are yeah. just by their nature. So you got a Bible thumping chummy guy that you're taking advantage of. And, um, but, but I mean, anyway, when Cato came here, that they were all thinking about this. He did, he's never heard born or run. So we've enlightened him. I mean, he's far more enlightened today than he was before. Um, Man, I've learned a bunch. I promise you. Well, I'll tell you. Well, I was telling Rev, you know, when, Kay, when Cato came, what I mean, Rev and I started doing this 10 years ago. And one day over the airwaves, I said, and I quote, the people that watch it don't care about you. And Rev looked at me like my kid, like, Daddy, you can't say that. I mean, it, just the look on his face yeah, was like, people, sure, they care I mean, the about me. The people I elect and I vote for as my yeah. representatives, I mean, they don't care about me. So so seven years later, um, what, what do you say about that, that comment I oh, made seven were, years ago? You were dead on. Not uh, only do they don't care about me, I don't think they like me. And and Cato came here. Um, I'm definitely convinced of that now. <laughs> I mean, but but you didn't have a very complicated understanding of politics. I mean, no. you, you know, I mean, I'm sure you voted and paid attention that time of the year. But I mean, doing this every day for five days a week for three years, you become far more in tune with what's going on. I love to do this, Kato. If you don't mind, during the week, I want you to. Um, I mean, it's unfair now because I don't want to catch you off guard. But just some things that you have, some things that have been revealed to you through doing this show about American politics. All right. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're the average consumer of American politics. 
I mean, you, you, you know, before you came on the airwave, I mean, you're doing your thing, you're working your life, you vote for the president, you vote for the congressman, you vote for, but but you weren't tuned in no, to that sort really. of thing. You are now far more tuned in because you sent me some some news articles and some texts and some other other sorts of things. Um, but we wish you well, and I mean that sincerely. Um, Cato's finding something else to do that he wants to give a try, and we wish him nothing but the dead level best in his um pursuit of life, liberty. And happiness, right? Or is it life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness? Uh, I want to go like back. That. I want to go back. Okay, that's our, the end of the day, that's our kids' Kato's butt segment for the day. At the end of the day, you can thank Joe for me leaving. That's all. I'll just put it, leave it at that. Thank Joe, Joe for you leaving. Joe, I got you. Okay. Gotcha. Is that an inside joke that I'm not inside no, on? No. Joe Biden? Yeah, Joe, Joe Biden. Biden. Yeah, okay, go, okay. Yeah. Hey, I just got a text a second ago. Buddy of mine fills up his um, car, $100. Ugh. In the country, <laughs> that's a skull. I mean, that's, that's a skull yeah. where I come from, a hundred bucks. Um, I mean, imagine the economic impact it's going to have. Let's say when gas is two bucks a barrel and you're filling your vehicle up for $50, there, there's enough money to go to a restaurant, you know, Thursday night with your wife, 50 bucks. Um, not the case any longer. That hundred dollars goes to put, um, you know, gas in your car to get you from point A to point B. And, um, and you know, I don't care how much you make. We all have budgets, Right. That fifty bucks is already spoken for, so you're not able to go out, and um, so the so the restaurant's business begins to decline. Why? Because everybody's putting an extra fifty dollars a week in their in their car for gasoline. That's where we're headed, and it's not Putin's fault. I mean, it, Blinken said over the weekend that there is a serious conversation that the West is having about embargoing some of the uh, some of the Russian oil. It is simply impossible. There, there is no way to do this without causing a runaway spike in the prices we're now seeing. I mean, it's impossible. It's unachievable that the only way we can potentially wean ourselves off some of this Russian oil is to produce more here at home. And up until now, the Biden administration and the Democrats have had nothing to say about pursuing uh, a faster permitting. Uh, so some of the Anwar, some of the government lands, uh, North Dakota, when Trump was president, North Dakota by itself produced enough gas, enough oil to make gas, refined the gasoline that could replace what we buy from Russia every day. So we, the American government, not you nor I, but the American government are choosing to buy oil from from Russia instead of making it in, instead of producing it in, in North Dakota. And when you look at Russia, here's the reason it matters, guys. Saudi Arabia is the second biggest producer of oil in the world. They produce about 12% of the, of the uh, product, producing supply, production supply. The United States is still number one at about 14 and a half. Now, when Trump was president, we were at about 19 million barrels a day. We're at about 15 million barrels. There have been some days where it's 16. There have actually been a few days where it's 18. But the average we're producing in America today is about 15, 16 million barrels barrels per day um previously in 2020 we were at around 18 to 19 million that's about 20 percent of all the oil produced in the world produced here in the good old us of a here's the dilemma you ready we consume about 21 million barrels big big economy burns a lot of energy needs energy to power that big economy um how do you grow the gdp you grow the economy how do you grow the economy? You power the economy. How do you power the economy? With energy. Where does the energy come from? Well, we hope it comes from America. 
But but when we're when we're producing twenty or twenty one million barrels per day, and we have the capacity to do that, I mean, we could produce uh, some estimates say twenty three million barrels per day. I mean, we've been an oil exporter at times, and this gives them the market based and buys and sells and puts and longs and shorts and and Wall Street and J P Morgan and Goldman Sachs. It's real complicated after that. Exxon, Shell, BP. Um, but we produce enough energy in America to be energy independent. If we choose to, we're choosing to not be energy independent. So when you look at the gas pump this morning, as my friend just texted me, screenshot of the um, $100, 25.4 gallons, $100. He said, and I quote, I'm in disbelief. Don't be angry with Putin. I mean, be angry with Putin for invading a sovereign uh, nation. Unprovoked war declared against a neighboring country is always a reason for us Westerners to be bothered, to, to maybe be motivated to involve ourselves in some way, shape, or form. But Vladimir Putin's not the reason gas is $4 a gallon. It is the, the decisions the Biden administration made not anticipating nor preparing for what Biden or what Putin could or could not do um, and here's where here's where the world gets complicated, and it's China. China only produces about 4.92 million barrels per day. China consumes about 15 million barrels per day. So China is, as we say in, in the good old boy world, they're upside down about 10 million barrels per day. Somebody has to make that up. Saudi Arabia makes a lot of that up. They sell China a lot of energy. Russia makes a lot of that up. Russia provides a lot of energy. Russia produces about 11% of all the energy in the global market. Once again, you try to get balance and equilibrium. We try to produce about 100 million barrels a day. We try to consume about 100 million barrels a day. When you have a spread or a margin, that is when oil goes up or down. In other words, if the oil, if, if OPEC decides that they want to declare war on fracking, remember um, Jeff and that, uh, Jeff had a kind of a disagreement with a person who called who's in the oil business. They, they argued about where fracking is profitable, you know, the extracting via hydraulics and, and this is kind of a technology. It's a lot of more, it, it ain't, um, it ain't Jed clamping. It up came a bubbling cruise. <laughs> uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So the extracting of oil is expensive when you do it in that technologically advanced way. And whether it's, whether it's 60 or 80, I mean, it's somewhere in that neighborhood and every now and then, OPEC will basically turn the spigot up because OPEC's extraction cost is less than $20 a barrel. I mean, if we're fracking and we break even at about 40 or 50 or $60 a barrel and OPEC can break even at 20 or $25 a barrel, if the economy begins to slow and we don't need as much energy, sometimes OPEC will increase the production to skew supply and demand and basically force fracking offline. I mean, we've seen that happen. Putin did that. Uh, about a year leading up to where we are today. Um, guys, I'm telling you, in this endeavor, Putin, the, the only mistake that I see Putin has made, I mean, we can argue the merits of invading a sovereign nation. I mean, that's declaring war on innocent people. Okay, we've established that. But when it comes to the terms and conditions of which he's initiated this, um, this endeavor, he's been masterful. I mean, for a couple of years, he got his, I mean, it got, well, I mean, in, in my opinion, he got himself in a position of, of having a lot of leverage, especially when Biden decides to take production offline. Putin becomes a, a much more dangerous figure 
in the world, and, and, and that's what we've decided to do. So when you look at United States, Saudi Arabia, Russia, Canada, China, Iraq, um, United Arab Emirates, Brazil, Iran, Kuwait, I mean, those are the top 10 producing oil countries in the world. United States, China, India, Japan, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Brazil, South Korea, Canada, Germany. Those are the top consuming countries in the world. Only one is completely and totally out of whack, and that's China. I mean, the others produce about as much as they consume. Let's see here. Let's do, uh, for, for an example, let's do Iraq. Iraq produces 4.15 million barrels per day. They're not even the top 10 of consumers. I mean, it's not a big economy. It's, it's a kind of a one-trick pony when it comes to what is their economy. Russia, let's do this. Let's go to Russia. Um, Russia produces 10.5 million barrels a day. Russia consumes 3.7 million barrels per day. So Russia has a spread positive 7 million barrels per day. Remember we said last Profit. week, they export about 6.5 million barrels per day. I mean, Russia's still taking care of their own needs, they're energy independent, and they're, they're offshoring or exporting about 6.5 million barrels per day. So if we decide to embargo 6.5 million barrels of oil per day, somebody's got to make that up or we have a tremendous spike in pricing. And, and nobody's decided to make that up. Can, can Saudi Arabia make it up? They probably could. I mean, they can, they can increase the flow, increase their production capacity. But the people most affected are the American consumers. And your federal government is choosing to make domestic energy production more dangerous than Russia. That's a bizarre argument to well, make. Well, Jen Psaki says, doesn't she say it's the oil companies that are not drilling where there are already approved leases? Well, I mean, of course. But, I mean, do you trust Jen Psaki on energy production in America? Not a bit. Well, smart man. Back in a minute. <laughs> Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. I don't know if you saw this or not, but Visa and Mastercard have pulled out of Russia, and now China is providing Chinese. There's a Chinese credit company that I, I guess would be the counterpart. Uh, I guess it would be, um, you know, Communist Visa or Communist Mastercard. Mm. Uh, so, so yeah, China is exporting some of their free market uh, to to Russia, guys. I read the 5,000 page, uh, or excuse me, the 5,000 word, not 5,000 pages. That would be the Bible. 5,000 word <laughs> um, pact that, you know, Xi and Putin agreed to. P please understand, this is not an agreement between the Russian people and the Chinese people. You nor I will ever know what the sentiment of the Chinese people are. You nor I will ever know what the sentiment of the Russian people are. But that's Putin's job to make sure. I would be they're upset hear. that their debit and credit cards aren't working, that they can't watch Netflix. Well, I would imagine they're Facebook upset has that been rubles, blocked. Well, the ruble's worth a penny, you know. Yeah, and, inflation and you crazy. can't watch Netflix in Russia or China, uh, for that matter. Well, China, I don't think China. We we've not isolated China because we've not figured out a way to wean ourselves off of the manufacturing that China. That is the story here. How in the world the most powerful nation in the history of mankind? is so dependent on communist nations. I mean, right. stew on that for a second, guys. We are an anti-communist. We are the shining city on the hill. We're the beacon of hope and light. We're the way forward for the Western world. We've liberated humanity in ways that never has man been liberated before.
until along came the great old or the good old U.S. of A. And how many times have we heard this? We're great because we're good. You know what we're not good at? We're not good at energy independence, and we're not good at manufacturing. And we've decided to get in bed with the two largest communist regimes on this planet, and we depend on one for a lot of the energy production and another for a lot of our manufacturing production. And it's not just America. I mean, it's the Western world. It's Europe in particular. Um, Russia provides Europe with 25% of its oil and 40% of its gasoline. I mean, imagine what's happening in Europe now. We, we, we are a, um, I mean, there's some Western nations that don't have an abundance of resources. There's some nations that aren't as expansive and, and, and profitable or prosperous as the good old U.S. of A. I mean, we happen to be um, strategically located and we have an abundant amount of resources that we could utilize if we choose to. But, but when you think of global leadership, let's think of, let's think of the Western world for just a second. How, how can the Western world be the beacon of hope? I mean, the United States of America is the leader of the Western world, right? I mean, we, we are the, the liberators. We're the freedom lovers. We, we, um, we celebrate liberties and freedoms in a way that the, the Eastern world does not. Yet, in two of the primary functions uh, of the way we, I don't know, the, the economy is built on manufacturing, right? I mean, in, in the Industrial Revolution, why did America fare so well? Because we made things. We produced things. We manufactured things. What does it take to power a, an industrial revolution? Oil, energy, gasoline, diesel, kerosene, um, nuclear power. It takes a lot of different facets of energy to lead to a, a production renaissance like the industrial revolution. But, but we have decided, our political leadership in its infinite wisdom has decided, hey, Instead of manufacturing in the Rust Belt, let's let China do it for us. Hey, aren't they communist? Yeah, but I mean, we can work that out. They'll make these widgets a lot cheaper. Corporate America can make more money if, if we make them over in China. Okay, um, Biden gets elected in January of 2020. Hey, you know that Trump guy that had us producing as much energy as we consume somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 million barrels a day? Why couldn't we import some of that energy from Russia or Saudi Arabia or Iran or Iraq or some other place? Um, and the next thing you know, our manufacturing deficiency has been um, outsourced or our manufacturing abilities have been outsourced to communist China. And there's the deficiency. Our energy deficiency has been outsourced to at a large share communist nations, totalitarian regimes. We're just not a smart country. Trump said it over and over and over again. We have a wonderful, wonderful country. It's just not governed by really, really bright people. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in North Carolina. Hi, David. Hey, yeah. Hey, Ken. I think we're missing a bigger picture here. Um, they, I mean, if you look at it, I, I was an originally, you know, we were producing all, and Trump realized have uh, to produce our own research. If we outsource it, then it becomes a, a national security problem. David, we can't, but we're catching about every third word. I'm sorry, we're catching about only every every third or fourth word. Get to, I mean, not word, get to a better location to call back and we'll get you a fast track to the front of the line. Let's go to the phone. Line two has Russell in Florence. Hi, Russell. Hey, Ken. Hey, Russell. Good morning. Good morning. 
Um, I'm going to start by saying you and I should probably take a fishing trip because I'm not going to be able to unpack all this <laughs> in the time frame. Well, do the best you can. <laughs> yes, sir. Um, has anybody gathered the thought that maybe the Republicans and the Democrats in this country are kind of working in lockstep? And, and I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. We, we want electric cars. The same people that are pushing for electric cars don't want to build any new power producing facilities. So that's counterintuitive to what they want to do because we're going to overload our, our power grids. And with this whole thing with Russia, we were drilling on federal lands, which was a short-term fix, but it was working. And we had the Keystone Pipeline under construction, which has never been online. That was our long-term plan. We cut that away. Now we're buying oil from Russia. We're essentially funding the violence that's going on in Ukraine. Either way you want to look at it, they're getting money from us. If we cut that off, that would hurt them badly. But who would it hurt worse? Us. And, and I don't understand the whole concept of left and right, liberal and conservative. I'm physically conservative, but I'm socially liberal. I'm all about helping people who can't help themselves, not people who won't help themselves, but people who can't help themselves. And I feel like our politicians are, they take one side or the other, but you can't have the whole pie. And, and why does someone always have to lose? Why can't both sides win? And, and I'm going to hang up because, like I said, I could, I could get real emotional about all this stuff, but it's just frustrating. For me. It's extremely, th thank you. Well, I mean, it's extremely frustrating, Russell. Thank you very much. I mean, well, when I hear these people, I, you know, there, there is no bigger fan of Elon Musk than yours truly. I mean, I think Musk is a renaissance man. I mean, I think Musk is as much a renaissance man as anybody since Thomas Jefferson. I mean, Jefferson was not an engineer and an inventor. Well, he was an inventor, an extremely talented inventor. He was not an engineer, but he was a renaissance man. Jefferson wrote and spoke about things and, 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 you know, individual rights and freedoms and liberties. Musk has acted upon those sorts of notions and has disrupted businesses that I think need to be disrupted. But, but Musk admits that we don't produce anywhere near the electricity. I mean, it, it, let, let's say that Joe Biden's right. I mean, let's say that Joe Biden gets his way. Let's say Joe Biden is the smartest man in the room. We know he's not, but it's for argument's sake. Let's, let's say that Biden is right. And 60% of Americans are driving electric cars by the year 2030. I mean, that's not going to happen, but that's for argument's sake. Stick with me for just a second. You know what the, you know how much energy it would, it would, we would have to expand our electric power grid by about 140%. I mean, it's, it's less than half the size. We produce less than half the megawatts, kilowatts, gigawatts that it would take to charge that many cars if that many people were not driving internal combustion engines, but instead uh, battery-powered cars. That doesn't count for the CO2 emission of um, carbon emissions for each battery. I mean, we're talking about 23,000 um, and, and 23,000 pounds of carbon emissions per electric battery. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a Tesla battery survey out there that for every 7,500 kilowatts that there's a... I mean, it, it, I don't want to even go into detail because I don't understand it. There, there's a CO2 emission scale that is staggering. And I'm talking about kilograms of CO2. For every 75 kilowatt battery in a Tesla, it emits an unbelievable amount of CO2 emission. Um, I mean, it's something like 
14 to the 6 power kilograms of CO2. But it doesn't matter. But because Washington have to explain itself. Well, what I'm hoping for and what I'm beginning to sense may be happening in America today is, I mean, when Americans get hit into the pocketbook, they start paying real close attention. I mean, as long as gas is two bucks a barrel and, you know, and I'm living my life and I can go out and eat a couple of days a week and, you know, the gym's open and we're, we're all of a sudden lived, we've lived for about three years in a very disruptive era. You got COVID. I was thinking about this the other day. In my youth, maybe I'm naive to that because I was young and I was not aware, but think about young people today. 9-11 happened in 2001, right? I mean, that changed the world forever. Seven years later, the world blew up with the housing fiasco. Uh, about 10 or 11 years later, we have a pandemic. And, and now we're in the middle of a, you know, a, a, um, a communist country overtaking uh, another sovereign nation. And we're called in the middle of this by deciding, you know, with, with green energy and this, um, this ambitious dream of the American political left to not be energy independent basically to treat domestic energy production as a uh, more of an evil than German, excuse me, Russia or, or China. I mean, the absurdity of what we're doing and where we are. But, but the previous caller's comments of, you know, who's complicit in this? Who's working together in this? Um, is it, is it in, incompetence? Is it coercion? Is it, is it corruption? Yeah. I mean, I think it's all of the above. I think there's coercion. I think it's corruption. And I think it's absolute incompetence. But, but for, for those who believe, and this is the insanity of the left, in my opinion, but Rev, it's really not the insanity, it's the unseriousness of the left. The, the leftist gibberish on energy is childlike. I mean, it really and truly is. I, I'll listen and consider some things that people on the left say, but when they begin to talk about energy, everything they know, you know where they read? They read the Huffington Post or Atlantic Magazine. And all of a sudden, they're an expert. They went on a podcast and, and saw some European Union expert or academic, some professor from Oxford or Harvard or Yale or Princeton or Stanford articulate why he thinks this energy revolution is attainable. It's absurd. It's not serious. It shouldn't be taken seriously. But they read things in the Atlantic. They read things in the New York Times. And they're inspired and they're aspirational by nature anyway because they believe in government, that they believe that government can create, you know, more equity and parity and fairness and equality in the world, and it just can't. I mean, there is no way. If we decided today that everybody wanted a Tesla and we tried to charge our Tesla simultaneously, nothing else would work, and about half the Teslas wouldn't be charged. And Elon, by the way, his tweet, uh, what, three days ago, Hate to say it, but we need to increase oil and gas output immediately. Extraordinary times demand extraordinary measures. Obviously, this would negatively affect Tesla, but sustainable energy solutions simply cannot react instantaneously to make up for Russian oil and gas exports. The guy that has more to lose than anybody on this planet says drill, baby, drill. But the children on the left who read the Atlantic Magazine and Huffington Post and New York Times, that they choose to be inspired by something other than that. Back in a minute. You know, the argument you hear on the electric car crowd is, well, nobody will be, I mean, what are the chances every single car will be charging every single, or all at the same time? That's not the debate. The, the debate is, do we have the capacity to charge every single electric car at the same time? The answer is no. But if you Google 
do we have enough power to charge every single electric car if every single American drove an electric car? You know the answers you'll get? Yes, we do. But but it's with that carve-out. It's based on the analysis, and it's proper. I mean, it's accurate. Nobody, I mean, everybody's not going to be, Everybody won't be charging their at the car same time. at exactly the same time. But but that's not the honest truth. I mean, it's spin. And, and the majority of liberal media is in bed with this green energy plan, and, and they would rather the proposal be uh, more validated. Yeah. What do we need the answer to be based on our political ambition? And, and that's, I mean, but, but, there, but what I'm saying, is, it is a valid argument to make, but it makes people believe that someone like me are being fundamentally dishonest when I'm not. If we did, the, the, the electric grid as currently in place were to try to charge every single electric car today, it couldn't do it. I mean, it, well, if every car were electric, it couldn't do it. It could charge every single electric car today because only, what, 3% of all the cars on the road today are electric, but we're very ambitious in hoping in the next 10 or 12 years to be completely done away with the internal combustion engine. So some of the interesting opinions are Warren Buffett. I don't even hear Buffett say much about this or not. Uh, he, he says it's um, well, it's not Buffett. It's uh, Charlie Munger. Charlie Munger calls it um, smartassery. <laughs> and there's always a place for that in, uh, in finance and, and capitalism. Let's go to the phone. Oh, we have uh, David in North Carolina back with us, I think, in a better signal area. Are you there, David? Yeah, I'm here. Hey, David. Yeah, hey, uh, really quick, so before I lose the signal again, um, China, everybody knows that, that, that Biden's in bed with China and Russia. I mean, Milley immediately called China and said, hey, we won't bomb you. We're not going to attack you. We'll let you know in advance. One of Biden's people. They turn around and give intel from uh, to, to China, to try, and then China turns around and gives it to Russia. Biden immediately shuts down the pipeline here, opens Russia's pipeline. And the problem is, with, with the battery system, as far as cars, where do you get your batteries from? China. About, we, everything that's happening now is glaringly obvious that anything that we need as far as resources, we need to produce in-house so we're not dependent on another country, especially a, an adversarial country. Thank but you. There's no doubt in my mind. Okay. Now Thank continue, you. continue. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, and but the thing is, 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 there's no doubt in my mind that all of this is is almost pre-planned. It may be a conspiracy theory, but I mean, all of a sudden, we're completely distracted from anything else going on here, and we're dependent on Russia for oil, and then we're telling Russia not to attack, and they're doing it on our money. I mean, it's all obvious, and Biden can't fight against it because Russia and China will will turn on him in a minute, and he knows it. And there's nothing he can do about it. And that's probably all of his administration and probably some of the Republicans, too. Well, I mean, if one, thank you for the call, appreciate it. If one, if there's, if there's one beacon of hope here, let, let's be measured for just a second. I mean, we hardly ever do that hearing conservatives already, but let's, let's be practical for one minute. If we were manufacturing in a way that sustained our economy, in other words, if we were independent, I mean, okay, we trade with Western countries, but we're not depending on a communist nation who would rather replace us than supply us. We're, I mean, I, I just like the arrangement of dealing with Germany. I mean, there, there are some, I mean, I get as frustrated as anybody with the Western countries not pawning it up and allowing America to be, you know, kind of, kind of the sole contributor to policing the world, whether we like it or not. But we find out of these complicated times when, when, when communism is on the move, the Western world has to confront that in some way shape or form but but if there's one ray of hope in all this it is the american people beginning to realize how incompetently this nation has been governed 
And by incompetence, I mean depending on, I mean, the largest economy in the world needs what? We need energy. Everybody knows that. I mean, everybody clearly understands that if we're going to be the cat daddy of economic activity, we've got to have a certain amount of energy to produce the GDP that leads to the largest economy on the planet. Where do we get that energy from? We produce it. That's what we do. We produce it because we're America. How about manufacturing? I mean, and and I'm being very redundant in this, but I don't think I can say it enough. How does the strongest nation on this planet get itself in a position of depending on a communist nation for a lot of its energy needs and a communist nation for most of its manufacturing needs? I mean, just somebody explain that to me. That's not a Republican or Democrat argument. I mean, I'm not arguing that the Republicans have tried to, to stop the Democrats from doing that. No, in all honesty, Anybody with an R or a D that's been in Washington for an extended period of time, you are responsible. I didn't cut a deal with China. I didn't cut a deal with Russia. Most of you folks did. So the most powerful country on this planet don't produce enough energy to provide itself, nor a manufacturing capacity to take care of its own business. The absurdity of that. Back in a minute. Song on Monday morning. Picked that one, right? Yeah, of course he did. <laughs> What's song. wrong with that? It's a dainty song. Better than any Bruce. It's a cute song. <laughs> What's Taylor, we're gonna let you choose the music the rest of the week, All except right. Friday. I mean, you get to choose the Springsteen song of your choice Friday. Leonard you've Skinner already, I mean, you, you've right? already kind of chosen the Springsteen song of your Friday. Uh, what you thought was a Johnny Cash song last week. Yep, that's when probably you, what it will be. Can, can he play the Johnny Cash version yeah. for his Springsteen song? We'll, we'll let him do what he Friday. wants to on there his last go. day. Hey, for those just joining us, um, Cato is leaving after Friday. He's been with us uh, three years, if I'm not mistaken. Almost three. Uh, done a, uh, an exceptional job. We'll miss him, but wish him nothing but the best in his future endeavors. Um, we have scarred him for life, <laughs> and that's the intent. So anybody we get in this fold... We fundamentally scar you and damage you for life. You're far less employable once you tell someone, hey, I worked on that radio show, Wake Up Carolina. (laughs) You did what? You'll have to read the Atlantic Magazine 75 consecutive days (laughs) to get that taint and stain off of your hard-earned reputation. Let's go to the phone. Here is Larry and Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Larry. Good morning. Uh, good morning, everyone. I mean, uh, I see y'all have gotten a lot more popular since I first called because it took me like 30 minutes today. I used to call and I get right through. <laughs> what happened? I, I I don't have any idea, Larry. <laughs> I, all I do is um, if there's I ask Rev during the break, or any calls. If there aren't, I run my mouth. If there are, we go to the calls. Um, the oh. the the time 
Uh, the timing or not is, is yeah. you know, I'll let you blame Rev and um And sometimes, and you know, if you call before a break and we have to break, you know, on time. Oh, no, no, Sorry no, about that. I'm just saying it, it, y'all lines are busy. That means y'all got a lot more people calling in. There you yeah. go. There you, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a good thing. Now, you were talking about the, uh, the the Tesla and and Elon Musk. Now, I just got a question. Anybody ever do any studies about sitting on a big battery that pulls a car for two to three hours a day? I mean, it's not good for you to hold a cell phone up to your head that long, now, is it? So why sit around and? But that that's a that that that's probably you know hopefully they'll do a study on it before they have people sitting around on big batteries. <laughs> <laughs> you hadn't really heard a lot of talk about that, have you? No, I, I, I think I think uh, electric cars are good for the big cities. I mean, you know, they could they could actually you know put underground cables so they could charge the cars up uh, wirelessly, something like that. But that that would work for the big cities, not for the rural areas. There you go. Thank you, Larry. Appreciate that. And I want to say this. I mean, I am for renewable energy. I mean, I think we need to diversify. I mean, if we can figure out a way to not depend on fossil fuels and, uh, I mean, it, it weakens some of the people that don't care much for us. Saudi Arabia. I mean, we know the deal in the Middle East. The, excuse me, the, um, the oil cartel, OPEC. I mean, we understand how overpowering they can be. And, and where does OPEC, I mean, when you really think about it, Reb, the energy, I mean, energy is the driver of power and influence and leverage in the global economy. I and mean, if you are an energy producer, people have to deal with you. I mean, why else do we care what happens in Saudi Arabia? I mean, really and truly, why do we care what, I mean, Saudi Arabia has never shown an expansionist tendencies. I mean, they exported terrorism. But, but I mean, wh- wh- where, where does the majority of their relevancy come from? Their ability to produce energy. I mean, they, they, it's an oil-rich part of the world. Um, so, so energy's always been at the center of political and economic leverage and who, you know, who has the cards, who plays the cards, how do the cards get played? And we made a terrible decision the, the, the second worst decision we made when Biden got elected was deciding to not continue arming the Ukrainians. You know, uh, John Carl want to talk about a lot of things Trump said, and Trump was famous for saying a lot of things, but Trump continued arming the Ukrainians. And Trump continued pursuing energy independence. The second worst thing Biden did was discontinue arming the Ukrainians. That makes life a little easier for Vladimir Putin. And then on top of that, he decided to constrain our ability to produce energy. And that makes us more dependent on Vladimir Putin and communist Russia. I mean, some things aren't that complicated. Geopolitics can be very intricate, sophisticated, and, 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 and kind of a domino effect. And, and as, they, as they appear is not always as they are. But when we decided to not arm the Ukrainians, when we decided to not produce as much energy, we should have known, or the Western world should have known, that that was going to embolden Vladimir Putin. And it did. And here we are. And, and we're, we're buying energy from a communist regime and we're, we're, we're allowing a communist regime to be our manufacturing, the global manufacturing plant. I mean, if we are the preeminent superpower on the planet and we are those or we are the nation that needs to have leverage in every negotiation, we're just being poorly managed. I mean, it really boils down to that. I mean, it boils down to our nation being a very poorly managed, large, enormous entity or enterprise. Let's go to the phone. Clint in Camden, you are on the air. 
Hello, Clint? I don't know if Clint's trying to talk and we can't uh, understand him. Oh, or yeah, no, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm here. I'm okay, here. I'm here. Okay. I had something else coming in my other ear. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. Uh, good morning, Ken. Uh, listen to you every day, and uh, uh, I just wanted to put in a little short comment on the uh, the power grid and, and having these electric cars. These guys are either looking through rose-colored glasses or they're manipulating the numbers or something because how how often have you heard – uh, this day and time, about rolling brownouts, brownouts, and rolling power outages out in California or on the left coast over there. So, And those are probably the most tree huggers over there who uh, want to drive one of these electric cars. Can you imagine after, in the afternoon to come home in the evening, they plug up, park the car, plug up the electric car, go inside, kick up the air conditioner. Guess what's going to happen? Rolling power outages, big time. That's all I got to say. And uh, let's go, uh, Brandon, and uh, roll tide. <laughs> roll tide, yeah. <laughs> don't talk sports to me today. I don't yeah. want to talk any sports yeah, week. today. I've already railed against my Gamecocks and everything about USC uh, before 6.15 this morning. I got that out of my system <laughs> uh, very early before I even uh, became um, – caffeine affected <laughs> but but yeah i mean th- there are a lot of things to consider here once again guys if you believe the answer to america's problems are in atlantic magazine or salon.com we get exactly what we deserve there putin lives in the real world i mean bongino's talked a little bit about this last week and i mean i think he he articulates this in a very understandable and, and legitimate fashion you know we tend as, as westerners we're and, and i go back to the duke basketball game you know, I was thinking about this, Rev. I, I turned from the news to the basketball game Saturday afternoon. I had a little time late Saturday afternoon. I was doing some radio show prep because um, the race comes on Sunday. And uh, you like to joke with me. I like a good car race. I mean, I've always been <laughs> yes, you do. a fan of a car race. <laughs> and um, and I don't miss my NASCAR. I mean, I really don't miss my, my NASCAR. So so Saturday afternoon, I got home late. And uh, the Duke uh, the Duke basketball, Duke NC North Carolina basketball game, I'm started at six o'clock and I wanted to watch some of the pregame. And the reason, I mean, I kind of grew up with, with Coach K. I mean, he's been there 42 years. I was 17 years old when he took the job at Duke. Um, I could argue, and I like arguing, I could argue that Coach K is the greatest single hire in the history of college athletics. I mean, he was, you know, Duke was kind of a floundering program. I mean, Bill Foster was there before Duke. Uh, before Coach K got there. But when he got there, I mean, you, you, the 42-year run he has had and, and, and the chance Duke took, and uh, I mean, nobody had ever heard of him, and here he goes. He shows. Anyway, the point I want to make is, so, I'm, you know, I go, I go from Ukraine, Russia. I'm watching CNN and MSNBC and Fox. I'm trying to get every, every, every nugget of information I can. I don't want to just get what Fox is saying. I want to get CNN's take on it, MSNBC's take on it. So I'm back and forth, back and forth. And then I turned to the basketball game, and I watched the basketball game, and then I watched the celebration after the basketball game. It was still a celebration despite Duke losing at home, but I watched these young, privileged, white, spoiled, affluent kids cry because Coach K lost a basketball game. And I just all of a sudden started thinking about, okay, what if these people had to defend freedom and liberty? I mean, what really and truly? What if the students at Duke, I mean, we're told they're the brightest and best, right? Oh, that's what we hear about Duke and Stanford and Ivy League institutions. Coach K loses a basketball game, and they cry, weep. I mean, they sob endlessly on national television. And I'm thinking to myself, th- these are the most spoiled, affluent, rich, 
privileged kids on the planet, by and large, I didn't say every single one, and I'm not trying to say they're bad kids, but what if those folks had to grab a machine gun, a machete, and some camouflage apparel and, and, and fight for liberties and freedoms? What, what do you think about that? How, how much history have they studied, and do they really understand the founding of this country? I, I, I would imagine that their library is uniquely equipped with Atlantic Magazine articles, <laughs> And the New York Times and the, and the Washington Post and Politico and the Hill.com and NBC.com and CBS.com. And, and it's a travesty what we've done there. And it just dawned on me, okay, we've got Ukrainians fighting for their fate and future. I mean, they're digging in. They're doing everything they can. Um, I would say man, women, and child, but the men actually put the women and children on a train or a bus or, you know, got them out of um, harm's way. And, and they, you know, they're, they're fighting a big bully defending their nation, and, and a lot of these are young people. I mean, I've seen some of the video. A lot of it is very young males doing what they can, um, you know, defending their country and homeland against Soviet aggression or, or Russian aggression. I'm sorry. That's ah, kind of Soviet aggression if you ask Putin about it. But but could we do that? Could we muster up that sort of defense? I mean, how many young people would really and truly, but because young people have been, I mean, they've been told a different definition of America. You know, that what you and I think of America, I don't think college campuses are teaching young people to, to, to you know, to be proud of America and that we have liberated. And, and there's a lot of things to celebrate the goodness of this experiment that I've been an honor, I've been honored to be a part of. And I think you would, would agree with mm-hmm. me with that. Let, let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Steve in Florence is next. Hello, Steve. Hey, morning, guys. I'll start off by saying we got a generation of skinny jeans and purple hair out there that ain't going to be doing much if they were asked to fight. But I'll go with uh, Tesla. Um, how many people can afford a $44,000 car right now? I'm just talking, you know, the average man, working man. I seem to do all right. I only bring in about 60000 a year, but I couldn't afford one right now. I'm paying off a $50,000 truck. That's kind of interesting. You know, it, 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 I can't believe the price of vehicles. I mean, I can't believe the price of everything now. I was trying to, I was trying to understand the price of housing over the weekend, and um, the meeting with with financial mind that's in my world. I mean, my banker. I mean, my banker and I were were eating lunch together Saturday, and we start talking about housing. And, and I, you know, I mean, I pay attention and I read a lot and I try to understand. And I've been in business all of my life, but but started th- thinking about you know what a house is worth here in Florence. And I would imagine something in Orangeburg are no different. And it is unbelievable. I mean, they're, they're, you know, how many houses in this area are half a million dollars? I mean, that, that's astounding to me. But he kind of went through, I mean, it's not just cheap interest rates. I mean, when you have supply restrictions and, and you, you have a distorted supply and demand equation in the economy, um, in other words, if Cato wants to sell his home, and, and, and there's, a, there, there's a limited supply of properties out there for sale, and the person is making a decision whether to buy Cato's house or build one, and he gets a quote on building one, and because of the supply constraints on lumber and shingles and um, contractors and painters and all these other sorts of things, the, the normal construction cost of $130 a foot has turned into $175 a foot. Doesn't Cato's home appreciate in value? Based on the the decision that consumer makes, do I buy Cato's house or do I build a house? I mean, if building a house is $135 a foot, Cato's is worth one price. 
if building a house is $175 a foot or $180 a foot, certainly Cato's house is worth more as a result of that. And, and we've just, I mean, the, 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 the asset appreciation is unbelievable. And, and I, I, you know, how in the world we believe this is normal is beyond me. I mean, I, I just, for the life of me, I am as, as afraid today about what is coming. And I don't know what's coming. I mean, I didn't say I understand with clarity what's coming, but I am as nervous today about what I know is coming in some way, shape, or form as I've ever been in my life. And I don't know what's coming. I mean, right. I, I don't understand with clarity. I don't profess to understand all the nuances of finance and Wall Street and Washington and, and geopolitics. I mean, I, I think I have a, a little bit of an understanding, but, but something just doesn't add up. I mean, something doesn't make any sense. And on the other side of this scares the immortal and living daylights out of me. And for it, I mean, there's one thing living daylights, and there's one thing immortal daylights. But immortal and living daylights, mm. that is a, um, that's something to be fearful of. Let's go to the phone. Here's David in the PD. Hello, David. Hey, good morning. Uh, suggestions for Cato on Friday. Let's see if Springsteen can play Freebird. I would imagine there's somewhere out there that he's played before. He could never do that because the band was set up with Leonard Skinner to play Freebird. And the only reason I bring that up, because that's what I love about America, is that, you know, you've got things set up here. And Ken, you talk about uh, Coach K. I mean, how many Duke fans are really from Hickory or Lumberton or Kings Mountain or Shelby, North Carolina? They camped out there the other night. Mm Mm-hmm. These guys are the, – Duke is the Princeton of the South, and that's kind of bothers me. And you brought up this whole thing about the lawyers at uh, University of South Carolina. Back in the day, I remember being a freshman, we had these conversations, and we would come up with, wow, why would you want to be a lawyer? There's too many lawyers. And then this is going to be weird. That's not calling for me. You know, we think of a doctor and that kind of stuff being a calling. And guess what? We They found uh, a market for lawyers because back in the day, I thought it was trials and wills and divorce. Think about the real estate industry that we have, the, the insurance industry, the DUI industry, um, the lobbyists, pharmaceuticals. I'm looking at this baseball strike, man. Where do these agents come from for these athletes? These are they, we have literally turned this nation from manufacturing into the service economy, and now when you have to go to the pump, just remember what I just said. But can you sue China? I don't think so. Bye. Thank you, David. You know, I read somewhere one day. Now that we're picking on lawyers, my good lawyer friends, put your hand over yours one second. <laughs> we, you know, we talk about health care in America, about 20% of our GDP we spend on health care, we litigate about 11% of our entire nation's GDP. I mean, if you look at litigation and settlements and lawsuits and wins and losses and, and the transference of funds within those uh, W's and L's and, and lawsuits, the, the litigation in America, I mean, it is astounding. There is no other country in the world remotely close to our health care expense nor how much we litigate with one another. I mean, Newt Gingrich has talked a lot about that over the years. The most litigious society in the history of mankind, 
and it's a standing. David, David says something a second ago. We're talking about baseball. I mean, this, this dispute is not going to be decided by lawyers and players. Excuse me, by players and owners. This dispute will be decided by lawyers. I mean, it, it really will. I mean, it, you know, for every player, there's probably four lawyers. For every owner, there's probably 10 lawyers. So you got a player, owner, and, and 20 lawyers in a room. Can anybody say billable hours? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back in just a minute. The National Reals, ah, the National Realtor Association suggests, or the National Banking Association, anyway, those who make these suggestions suggest that your mortgage payment not exceed 28% of your gross income. I mean, that's kind of a rule of thumb. 28% of your gross income can go to service your mortgage. If you're trying to pay 35 or 40%, you're probably in a house you can't afford. Now, now that's not across the board because some people are just hell-bent, dead set on living in a bigger home, but they'll figure out a way to make it work. Um, but your income, I mean, you know, it's got debt-to-income ratio and all these other sorts of things. 28% is kind of the industry average. That's what they suggest. If you're trying to buy a home and, and here's your price range, the, the, the mortgage payment needs to be about 28% of your gross income. In normal times, in American inventory, there are about 650 to 700,000 homes available to households making between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 a year. Stick with me for a second now. Take the 28%, you know, 28% of your gross income go to service your mortgage. In normal times in America, well, when the housing market is as usual, there are about 650,000 homes out there that someone, a household, making between seventy-five dollars and $100,000 can purchase. Today, there's about 200,000. So the number of homes has gone from 650,000 to 200,000. If you're going to apply the same metric of 28% gross income, go to pay your mortgage. That Those numbers just freak me out. Look, I, I was raised in a family business by a very dominating uh, business guy. I mean, not only was he my father, he was my, he was my boss. And uh, he was serious. I'll just leave it at that. I mean, he was a very serious businessman, and he demanded um, that of my brother and I. My brother and I thought we could run the business about 15 years earlier than he allowed us to run the business. But, but he was just aware that we weren't able. I mean, there, there was no way in the world he was going to forsake all of his hard work in the name of taking care of his children. I mean, that's just not, he didn't feel that, that he didn't feel any regret whatsoever in not going down um, that road. But, but he, he, he conditioned us to understand numbers. Math matters. Sooner or later, the numbers will catch up to you. I mean, you can kick the can down the road. You can kick the five-pound bu- uh, five bucket, five-gallon bucket down the road. You can kick the proverbial 55-gallon drum down the road. But sooner or later, the numbers do matter, and math will always win out. So in normal times, 650,000 to 700,000 homes are available to those making between seventy-five and hundred thousand dollars a year, you're in the using the twenty-eight percent gross income number, and all of a sudden that number's two hundred, and, and we just keep you know kind of moseying along as if there's nothing to see here, you know. Um, yeah, houses a little bit expensive. No, we we are completely removed from normal. Th- these are crazy times, and we continue to act as if they aren't. And it's just you know there's always a reason. 
I mean, if you, if, you, if you told somebody on CNBC this or somebody on Bloomberg or somebody on Wall Street or somebody in banking or finance or real estate, they would say, well, I mean, here's the reason. I, it, math is what math is. And there are historical averages for a reason. N- numbers matter. Numbers never, ever stop mattering. You can excuse. You can delay the inevitable. You can argue against. But, but we're going to have a major, major major correction at some point in time that will lower our standard of living for the next half century. There is no doubt in my mind now that you're there, freaking there, me there out. is a major financial event coming that will lower our standard of living for the next 50 years. Let's go to the phone. Here's Tony in Hartsville. Good morning, Tony. Good morning, guys. How are y'all today? Hey, Tony, how are you? Great. Thank you, sir. Ken, I agree 100%. I just had a couple of things I wanted to throw out there and see, get you to give me an answer on them, and I'd take my answer offline. You may mention something just about the, the housing industry. I believe there's coming a time like it was in 2008. It's going to go down. My daughter works for a bank, and I won't mention which bank, but um, she said people are really starting to overdo it and not looking for the future. And that's exactly what I believe is going to happen. And um, then the second thing is, you know, you were talking about how many people would do what's going on in in the other country right now. And, you know, when I see so many kids and parents, for that matter, to go out and say, well, stop the killing, don't do this, they're going to keep on waiting. One day it's very possible that you may have Russia right here in the United States. Thanks, sir, and y'all have a blessed day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. You know, a lot of this, because I've tried to go back and study this, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not an economic historian. I'm not a financial historian by any stretch of the imagination. But, but there, you know, the, the, the monetary system in America today is bizarre. I mean, it, it just is. I mean, it's bizarre. Um, we just print money with no underpinning. And the Fed buys some of the printed money. The Fed, Fed buys assets. And the Fed, I mean, it's, just, it's bizarre what we do. And if you go back to 33 or 34 when we went off the gold standard and then kind of went back on the gold standard in a weird way, and then Nixon, I mean, the, 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 the value of our currency is not correlated to a hard asset any longer. And I mean, it, it gets real complicated, and it, it's probably above my pay grade. I understand enough of it to be dangerous. But, but a lot of people have asked me, when I say something like I just said, that something is going to happen sooner than later that will affect and impair and and, and we'll live a lower standard of living. I, you know, I've said this to some of my friends before, and some go along and some push back. I think my kids will be afforded less opportunity than I have been. I think my kids will live, and I'm talking about, you know, in relation. I'm talking about in relation. Um, I think my, they're not going to ride their bicycle to work. But the standard of living, the improvement in the standard of living that has happened in the last hundred years is going to is going to fall, and it's going to fall because money matters and numbers matter, and you can't just continue to print money and have fiat currency without any correlation to a hard asset. And that's what we've done. You know, when you look at somebody said this to me, or somebody showed, I think it was my daughter showed me an old McDonald's menu back in the early seventies. You know, a hamburger was fifteen cent. And now the hamburger is, you know, $5.50 or whatever it is. Um, and I'm probably, McDonald's probably not a good illustration because they've done probably as well as anybody in, you know, managing the price of their product. I mean, they understand that they don't serve or, you know, a lot of wealthy people don't eat there. The people that eat there and by and large watching the money they spend. Um, 
It's just an inferior product. You, you got to believe that in 1972, when you bought a hamburger from McDonald's, it was a majority beef. Not the case anymore. Um, it, it's, it's, I mean, it's an inferior product. I mean, it just is. And th- th- they know their niche. You know what their niche is? People that don't have a lot of money eat at McDonald's. And I'm not picking on McDonald's. Fast food in general is one of these realities. But, but a lot of this has come about as a result of our, and I think it was 71. It was during the Nixon presidency that, that we decided to not correlate the, uh, the printing of money uh, to, to a hard asset gold, you know, the gold standard. When did America come off the gold standard? Uh, 1933 once. And then, but, but the, I, I guess the, when we went off the gold standard in 71, that led to the world of which you and I are living in today. And, and we had runaway inflation. We've lied about inflation. We mismeasured inflation. Um, the, the government has driven a lot of inflationary uh, measure, or excuse me, a lot of the inflationary pressures in the American economy by their willingness to print more and more and more and more money. And you can't do that forever. You just can't. And and I think we saw some of this. And Riff, think about this. Um, the world blows up in 2008. And th- th- there's a fundamental difference today. Talking about housing. The, the difference today is people are paying too much for the asset but they're not borrowing 95% of it or 99% or 100% or for that matter, 110%. I mean, there were people that bought homes and bought furniture. You know, they financed the furniture in with home, no down payment, no employment verification. And, and that led to subprime crisis. And we know what happened, the big short and all the movies and, you know, Goldman played both sides of it. Wall Street got made well. The government came along and had trouble asset relief plans. And uh, anyway, bailed out Wall Street and the consumer to some degree. Um, but, but we're, we're, you know, we're, we're in a far more precarious place today than we were in 2008 because we've got $30 trillion of federal debt. Half the money in circulation in the American economy today did not exist 24 months ago. Let me say that again. Half the money in circulation today did not exist 24 months ago. We're careless. We're reckless. We have no discipline. We have no plan. And and when I watch CNBC or Bloomberg, and I hear some of these, um, you know, asset managers, and I'm talking about some of the brightest and best. I'm talking about people who understand the, uh, the sophistication of the American economy. Um, real quickly, when, when Russia invaded Ukraine a couple of weeks ago, one of the asset managers on Wall Street said, well, it's easy what we should do. I mean, anybody knows because the market sold off, what, four or 500 points one day and a couple of hundred the next day. And that some of the brightest and best minds in America said the Fed balance sheet's got to go from nine to $12 trillion. I mean, it's nothing that tri- $3 trillion of stimulus oh. can't fix. But I mean, we're practicing modern monetary theory. I mean, that's what we're, that's how we're governing ourselves. And there's a day of reckoning. And I think housing is a part of this. Housing is not the driver in this, some I mean, of the, the the home is the largest asset and the biggest purchase most of us will ever make, right? I mean, unless you win a lottery, unless you have a couple of million bucks laying around in a retirement account, and only about one half of one percent have that. So for ninety nine and a half percent of people in America today, the home transaction, the biggest transaction you'll ever be involved in, and it's just bizarre to me that you know when you use the twenty eight percent rule of thumb, and that's twenty eight percent of gross income goes to pay your mortgage payment in normal times 
there are 650 to 700,000 homes available to people making between 75 and $100,000. Today, that number's less than 250. Math matters. Numbers mean something. And eventually, numbers win the day. Hmm. Back in a minute. Is this my stereo? Oh, hey, you got it. Hey, what happened to my stereo? It's all smashed up. That's right. Now, it looks like it was broken during shipping, and I insured it for $400. But you were supposed to get me a refund. You can't get a refund. Your warranty expired two years ago. So we're going to make the post office pay for my new stereo now? It's a write-off for them. How is it a write-off? They just write it off. Write it off what? Jerry, all these big companies, they write off everything. You don't even know what a write-off is. Do you? No, I don't. But they do. And they're the ones writing it off. So, so when we say the Fed's ballot sheet, Riss says, what is the Fed ballot sheet? I mean, what, what is a write-off? You don't even know what a write-off is, do you? Um, I mean, I don't know. Excl- I mean, I don't know exactly what the Fed's ballot sheet is. But but the Fed is. I mean, it would be like any other business organization. It has a kind of a balance sheet of assets liabilities and, liabilities and assets. No question about it. It has assets. It has liabilities. Um, it includes treasuries and uh, mortgage-backed securities. It has loans made to banks. Um, so so let's take the liabilities. That they would include any currency in circulation, any um, loans they would have made to commercial banks, any outstanding commercial paper. Um, then they expand their balance sheet during dire economic times. In, in other words, they'll they'll buy more assets. They'll they, they'll buy more bonds. That's called quantitative easing. In other words, if the market is not there for bond buying or stock buying or asset purchasing, the Fed plugs the gap. That's quantitative easing. Um, the government needs to sell a trillion dollars worth of treasuries, but the marketplace doesn't have any appetite for it. The Fed steps in. And, and that's when it expands its balance sheet by buying those assets that there's just not a market for. Why do we think that's not dangerous? I mean, just think of this. If the government offers up a trillion dollars of debt and the market says, we only want $200 billion of it, the Fed comes in and says, but we need to print a trillion bucks to meet these obligations, we'll take the other $800 billion, they purchase the asset, and that's the um, that's the QE part of it. That's the quantitative easing. But but I just thought that was interesting because of the, the old Seinfeld episode about write-off. Everybody acts like they understand exactly what a write-off <laughs> is. Very few people really, really understand it. Um, and, and Jerry and Kramer kind of go through that. I mean, and, obviously, and you keep throwing away around these things, uh, Fed balance sheet and all that. Well, I mean, and, does that make sense, though? Well, the way you just I mean, described it, it sure. It, it has a category of liabilities sure. and a category of assets, just like any business would. And um, But but it has a lot of creativity. It has the ability to order the printing of money, right? I mean, imagine if you ran a business and you had the, the, the capacity to go print money. Um, we didn't sell enough widgets this month. Who cares? Go print a billion bucks. Go print $100 million. Why do we believe it? And we're doing this with no correlation to a hard asset. What is that dollar worth? It's worth less and less when you print more and more, right? I mean, if the GDP of the country is, I mean, it's more than this, but just high argument's sake, the GDP of the country is a trillion dollars. The economy of this nation is worth a trillion bucks. And we got $2 trillion worth of capital. How can that work? 
I mean, we, we've deflated the value of the currency. And I think we've done this in so many places, Reb. And once again, I'm not an expert in international finance. I don't understand the nuts and bolts and nuances of quantitative easing. But I do understand business, and I understand profit and loss, and I understand, um, I mean, why, why would we believe that there's not danger lurking when we offer up a trillion dollars in government-issued debt backed by or secured by the full faith and credit of the United States of America, and the market says, eh, we don't want as much of that. We're a little bit concerned about you guys having so much debt. So the Fed buys the balance of it. I mean, the Fed is not a, it's not a, um, it's not a government agency, but it is. I mean, I, you know, I hear a lot of people and, and technically they're right. You know, the Fed is not a government agency. Ah, okay. <laughs> Jerome Powell works for who? He answers to who? I mean, when Jerome Powell has to testify and explain himself, where does he go? He goes to Congress. Congress. Of course he does. So I get that it is a, um, it is a kept alone entity and enterprise and it's not, it's, it's not a, okay, it's not a government agency per se, but, but it has the unique capacity to expand its balance sheet by buying more assets via quantitative easing, whether they have the money or not. And, and the absurdity of that is still buying enormous amounts of Wall Street assets. When, when, and, and for the lie, I just don't understand how we don't believe there's a brick wall out there somewhere that we're going to run into when the Fed, when some, well, I mean, maybe the Fed just continues, maybe a hundred trillion. I mean, maybe when we put the next trillion dollar tranche of government debt on the market and there's only X number of interest in it, maybe the Fed just keeps buying what nobody else wants to buy. Back in a minute. It's all about the money, right? 843-661-0937 takes Mondays to make Friday's trivia question, courtesy of our good friends at Pepsi of Florence. First caller to Correctly answer this question. You ready? Top 20 most valuable sports franchises in America. The New York Yankees are number two. There's only two other Major League Baseball franchises in the top 20. Give me one of the other two. The Dallas Cowboys are the most valuable sports franchise in America. The Yankees are number two. There are two other baseball franchises in the top 20. Give me one of those two. Hi, you're on. You know the answer? I do not. I'm sorry. Eight four three six six. I can name that tune in no notes. Yeah. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go to the phone. Hi, you know the answer. You're on the air. Atlanta used to be the Braves. Nope, not the Braves. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. The winner gets a six pack of Pepsi product. A couple of takes Mondays to make Fridays T-shirts, courtesy of Pepsi of Florence. Hi, you know the answer. Uh, Boston Red Sox. Boston Red Sox. You're right. The L.A. Dodgers and Boston Red Sox. Who is this? Where are you calling from? This is Mike and Florence. Okay, Mike. Hang on. We'll put you back to Cato. Congratulations and thanks for listening. And thanks to Pepsi of Florence. Enjoy your Monday. We'll talk tomorrow.